Welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Movies Movers podcast. I'm Ruggiero, your host, and I'm incredibly excited to be here with the one and only, the creator of Oddworld, co-founder of this incredible IP, Lorne Lanning. How are you doing today, Lorne? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here, Ruggiero. And, uh, well, it's an honor to be here. I look forward to this conversation. Lorne, your games, Abe's Odyssey, Abe's Exodus, and so many more, like New and Tasty and Oddworld Soulstorm, have been such an incredible process to see you grow and, and create this incredible world, the world of Oddworld inhabitants. It's just been a huge pleasure. I remember being eight, ten years old playing these games. And now here you're, you're still here making it happen. How does it feel? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it feels like I'd like to be more retired than I am, but uh, uh, we, you know, it was it was a grueling uh, recent production because we were just a, real quick, you know, we were distributed development, so it was already dealing with different studios in different parts of the world, and it's something we never would have signed up for if we knew COVID was going to keep us from actually having concentrated teams or be able to concentrate as a team, and so. Uh, like with New and Tasty, where you mentioned um, that was being done in England. We live in uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco. And, uh, you know, to get the project done, you know, I spent about five, six months in England to, with the team, you know, working, concentrated, focused, and we, and we worked things out. If you can't do that, I mean, I would never say, yeah, we could still pull it off not being together. Like you could pull off a certain amount. So it was really, really incredibly uh, difficult with teams spread out over, uh, you know, from time zones from the West Coast of America all the way wrapping around the world, going to, you know, <clears throat> Quebec, the East Coast of North America, over into uh, the UK, Morocco, and keeping on going and with Philippines and, and, uh, uh, Indonesia and a big engineering team in Australia. So it's just really fatiguing um, beyond from scope of work or challenges. It was just uh, to, to stay in the game. Right. It's kind of like you're making a film or something. It's like, did, did you see uh, uh, hearts of darkness? The I did of, not. <clears throat> that is a great, a great documentary on, on uh, what Coppola went through making, um, apocalypse now but uh that's why i say to stay in the game right to, to actually deliver and not have the project defeat you and it just wound up brutal and we had to myself and benny who's the executive producer and partner mm -hmm. uh, we just had to do all hours and a slow day was 13 hours because you got your morning calls are with the uk and they're going to sleep and then you're wanting to go to sleep except but that's when australia's rolling on and then the rest of the time and so it's just a, an incredibly challenging thing because this has so many moving parts i don't think until you make a game um i don't i don't think people imagine i didn't imagine i don't know anyone who makes games who knew how hard it was to make games you know because it's just an incredible amount of moving parts and you're battling with something that has to run in real time so it's not it's not like yeah we'll fix it in post there there is no post it's always uh, not live in terms of multiplayer, you know, MMO live, but live in terms of people are playing. And if it doesn't work right, it's going to fail. And if it fails, you're dead. So it's not like a movie where you go, ah, we'll fix it in the edit room. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, do some more green screen on top of whatever uh, bandage you can create. So it's just incredibly challenging. I mean, if you think about it, it's like we wrote 1.5 million lines of code on top of Unity's, you know, however many millions of lines of code. Uh, 
with other uh, components and tools that are, ex, you know, aside from the art assets, aside from the effects, aside from all that stuff. It's just so many moving parts. So I'm kind of whining about that a little, but it's really difficult. I wouldn't underestimate it for anyone. And it causes me to look a bit at the future differently, you know, because I've looked at many different m ways of producing stuff from having a big studio to then figuring out how to have uh, put, do more output at lower price, but, but have more heart in it maybe um and those those challenges through the years and then became like distributed development when we started uh publishing our own games in 2005 uh 2008 we really started self-publishing and then uh <clears throat> you know little lessons along the way and you take bigger and bigger bites and this one we wound up taking a whale's bite and we didn't even know that we were really doing that but we got ourselves into that pickle and then you got to prevail you know you have to deliver so the more ambition you have the bigger your eyes and your dreams, the more calluses are going to wind up on your feet and hands and brain. <laughs> you know, nah, just, that sounds right. That sounds right. Uh, and I got to tell you, it sounds like that instead of creating a sculpture, when making a game, you're really trying to create a system. And that's where really it, it, it becomes extremely complicated in comparison to films. And that's yeah. where, in addition to creating a system, you create a world. And this is what I think this episode is really about. It's about creating worlds for meaningful storytelling. Because what mm -hmm. I noticed is that loving the Oddworld universe so much for so many reasons is that this is a world that is not just filled with fancy creatures uh, just randomly around. No, not at all. This is a world that has meaning, deep meaning embedded within its structure. And there is so much work that I believe goes into something like that and that's why so many people love this universe. It just strikes chords that we might not even consciously be aware of, but they are there. And so I'm so excited to talk to you about this. But before we get into this world, I want to sure. ask you, yeah. who was Lorne Lanning before Oddworld? <laughs> well, professionally, I was coming out of, uh, I was a visual effects supervisor. I had just become a visual effects supervisor with uh, what looked like a really you know bright career in film. And... Uh, and then, uh, you know, there was reasons why I was like, oh, I'm, I'm something else. Uh, but I still have that film director uh, way of looking at the world, I think. And before that, I started off, uh, I, I did a little time in aerospace uh, because I was learning computer graphics. I needed to learn computer graphics. So, so I'll back up a little further. I started off in the uh, fine art world. Well, the, the commercial illustration world in New York, but it wasn't like I really got out there as a full-on pro. It was more like I was getting, you know, bits and pieces of work. I was able to afford to pay for my school and pay for my apartment in Manhattan, but I hadn't really, in, I was doing professional work, but I hadn't become what I would really consider a pro yet. You know, I was kind of feeding off the tidbits falling down at the bottom of the food chain, but it was getting me through, you know, life. And, and so I went to school majoring in photorealistic illustration, which was really, to me, the biggest uh, revelation in that learning was that we, we think we know what we see, but we really, we're seeing something else and our mind is filling in a lot. And the, the thing with photo illustration that really, uh, I was told by some of the top illustrators in the world that were that good because they were teaching at School of Visual Arts in New York where I was going. They were like, it will change the way you see life. So it's kind of a curse and a blessing, you know, but it's going to change the way you see life if you really learn how to do this well, because you're going to see what's there, not what your brain thinks is there. And that was a really interesting discovery because, uh, 
Then I learned that there was a science to what I thought a lot of people was just sort of raw talent. But then I learned really there was a much deeper science and a lot of it involved our consciousness, our awareness and uh, our experience as a witness to life, right? And like uh, good detectives will tell you or cops will tell you like every witness has a different story, even if there was the same event, you know? And so for me at that point, uh, I had enough skill that I was invited to be the assistant of a fine artist that was my favorite in the world at that time. And that was Jack Goldstein. That was in New York and I was going to the, you know, annual shows at like the Whitney Biennial and the, you know, modern and uh, uh, other galleries throughout Soho and such. And I kept on seeing this guy's work in different museums and big shows. And, and it just blew me away. It blew me away because it, at first it was just technically in, impeccable. And I'll give you an example of that. I, I, I was walking through an agency. Uh, it was uh, uh, not UA, not United Artists. Um, I think it was William Morris. Excuse me, I get these things. I'm kind of still a little fuzzy from from uh, drama of delivering this job, my brain. But I think it was William Morris Agency, which is one of the largest agencies in, in Hollywood, in Los Angeles. And uh, I'm walking through the hallway with, with some agents, and I stopped in front of a painting, and I go, this is an original Jack Goldstein painting. You know, I recognized it from when it was in the studio before uh, it went on to become, you know, have a place in history. And the, and the, and the, the, the agents all stopped. They go, this is a painting. We thought it was a photograph. You know, it's like an eight foot painting, you know? Uh, and this is Goldstein was so tight uh, on the painting because he was trying to remove the presence of the human being completely from his work. And he wanted the images to be something that uh, he, he was part of something called, I think it was the, the new images movement that was taking place in New York in the eighties, Robert Longo, uh, David Sally, and people were like that were all his contemporaries out of Cal arts and they all had graduated out of the same school. And, uh, and they later became something that a book was made called Jack Goldstein and the Cal arts mafia. Cause that's what he called it in New York because the, the graduates of Cal arts had sort of taken over a lot of the art world. And, uh, and it, it was a click, you know, <laughs> and, uh, so he was kind of part of it, but he was kind of an outsider to it. Uh, and, but he was very, you know, I, 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 just saying like the paintings were, it was all about, he didn't want any presence of the human. He just wanted the image to, and he was focused on these images that would sort of reduce what you could analyze about them. And you just sort of get reduced of language and analytical ability looking at it. And it starts to become just a sort of awe experience. And I was really interested in this. He was like, I, I want to reduce people into the raw moment of what is this experience? And one time I was with a collector in his like five-story brownstone in, in Soho, you know, it's just some, some banker who was financing like new uh, research for new cures to diseases, you know, just some guy who's making millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. And he, he was, he was looking at one of Jack's paintings. He had been buying some paintings and he had these paintings of, uh, it was a like B-52 bomber in the background, you know, small and black and white looked very much like uh, World War II footage. And there was a paratrooper, you know, coming down and the way it was, it was very interesting. I'm listening to this banker talk about it. He was actually quite articulate, which is unusual for collectors. 
and uh, regardless of what people would think, you know, they're mostly stock collectors who like to talk about art, but they're not really aficionados, you know, they're more investors, in my opinion, and uh, like a lot of critics. And um, <clears throat> the, the guy was telling me, he goes, I find this painting horrifying the longer I look at it. Like I was captivated when I bought it and I've been standing in front of it for long and long and I get more and more terrified when I'm standing in front of it. I was like, yeah, tell me more. And uh, he was he was basically speaking to things that Jack was telling me he wanted to achieve in a painting that I think he wasn't good at talking to collectors or uh, he was very adversarial in a lot of ways. Let's say, you know, as 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 youth, we we uh, suffer lots of traumas and have have lots of baggage sometimes. But he was someone who wasn't really working, interested in refining his. It was more like something that he was going to use as a as a pillar in his art. And so I was listening to this banker who was, you know, extraordinarily successful and, you know, you're like creating foundations in his name type of stuff. And, and I'm listening to him describe his experience. And it's what Jack's telling me at night and on the weekends, because <laughs> I'm still going to full school full time and shit. And he's telling me that this is what he wants to achieve in his audience. Like, like he wants to sort of bring them to this point. And there was another the theme that was running in his work, which was beauty and spectacle and horror is simply a question of your distance from the event. And this was really kind of fascinating to me. So he had images of, uh, he had a lot of like World War II paintings that were actually from photographs of images that couldn't be seen with the eye, but the camera could expose differently or things under a microscope or things seen by satellite or things seen by infrared, like the hum that new eyes that the human being didn't have that would allow us to see new uh, perceptions of our world and reality. And so he was into like, uh, you know, shrapnel tracers of, of uh, uh, chaff that's being sent up by, you know, ground forces that are trying to blow down planes. And, and it would just be this, this, photorealistic looking but still like you weren't weren't quite sure what you were looking at and that was part of the visual puzzle of it all was to get you into this questioning mode until you just kind of get in 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 an awe state of of the image and so he was like a nuclear bomb is about as horrific as we could ever imagine unless you're 50 miles away and it's kind of beautiful you know, and he would have all these uh, research papers and I'd be <laughs> he would leave me in the studio alone a lot and uh, he'd just be off doing business and I'd be running, you know, making whatever we had to make. And so I'd see all this, uh, like old school detectives, you know, it's just all these pictures and articles and tear, torn out of magazines or books or whatever, all strung on the wall. And I'd, I'd start reading these interesting uh, things about like experience of bombers in World War II and while they were raining hell down on like Dresden, you know, the, their experience from the air, they were just like, we knew that what was happening on the ground was horrible, but from our vantage point, it was beautiful. It was spectacular, you know? And these weren't people that were, uh, they were just being honest about their sensory experience. And they were kind of shocked at themselves for 
They knew what was happening, but they couldn't get past the power of the image that was unfolding beyond, b below them. Just they were like, when you see, bah, 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 they're like, you never saw fireworks like that. You never. And so this idea of the power of the image and spectacle and beauty as awe and distance is really a question. Uh, the difference between beauty and horror is sort of a question of your distance from the event, you know, was really intriguing to me. And it made me uh, start thinking in a lot of ways. But one of the most important things I started to see in my development was that I, I, I felt like some of the smartest ideas were still happening in the art world. And they were not finding their way to the rest of the world. Because I felt like the art world had become largely... Um, and maybe throughout history, uh, a game of for the elites, and I don't mean that as a proletariat. Although I think you know that's that's what I'd classify myself as in existence is more of a proletariat. So it wasn't like an elitist perception. It was more that um, since modern art, a language had been developed <clears throat> that left the pedestrian unable to critique the work. And this is a really interesting piece, and I, I thrive on this type of research, which is modern, the history of modern art is not what people think, because we don't think of the role in, in, of intelligence agencies in cultural movements, except cultural movements are shaped by people, think tanks, agencies that are interested in population control or Cold War agendas. Uh, and at the time, if we go back to modern art, what I'm going to say sounds like will sound like a conspiracy people theory to people who don't know. But there's books written on this now, and it was revealed through the Freedom of Information Act, where uh, the CIA had basically supported and helped grease the skids for the modern art movement. And that sounds ridiculous, um, it, you know, admittedly so. So, so I, I went. This is fascinating. I want to understand why. And this wasn't revealed that long ago. It was, you know, within the last five years, I believe. And uh, so, you know, you can get books on the subject and stuff. But if you think about, it's like, how do you control people? And that that became one of the most interesting topics for me. Is what is population control? How is it deployed as tactics, as systems? We we were talking earlier about systems. Building worlds as interactive things really means building systems. And and so I'm I'm really interested in the systems that control us, or this or. Uh, you're probably familiar with Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent, uh, how the public mind is shaped based on, you know, uh, special interests, uh, wealthy interests. And and I'm not setting up a dynamic of, you know, socialism versus capitalism. It's, it's not my agenda here as much as I'm saying people don't understand how their opinions are shaped by other forces. And uh, when you look at history, uh, People have asked me, I have an extensive book collection. You had asked for some pictures. I'll, I'll send a couple pictures of, of uh, the studio. I took them earlier for you. So we'll, we'll get them to you before we're off the call. But when they go, what's your favorite section? You know, what's your favorite part of the library? I say, uh, well, it's the history of rewritten history.
That's my most interesting section. And so that started for me. I'm going to jump around, but I hope this aligns and makes sense. Right? Sorry for my chihuahuas here. Uh, oh, no worries. I love it. And I love the journey <laughs> you're taking us on, man. I mean, I can see where we're going. And I can yeah. see so much resonance with the different pit stops that uh, we're going through. <laughs> okay, and I can't good. wait to see it all come together. Good, because I honestly, I love talking about it at, at this level, because this is really what drives the creation of, of these products, you know, for lack of a better word. And mm -hmm. um, and so uh, when we looked at Moderna, you go, well, come on. And you go, no, 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 wait a minute. The Soviets, similar to the Nazis, had embraced, and the fascists, had embraced a very uh, sort of, sort of, brutalistic approach to the traditional craftsmanship. And so when they made sculptures and they made figures with, you know, hammers and sickles or, or uh, you know, cutting wheat in the fields, the power of the worker, whatever the message was, they were embracing it to really give something for the, the, the masses to look up to, to appreciate, to appreciate the craftsmanship that came out of this, you know, depending on who it was, a superior race or a superior party that is freeing the world worker or whatever it may be. And that's what they were embracing. So if you looked at, we were in a cold war now. So, you know, Nazis rotted away and now we're, now we're facing uh, what, what would become uh, capitalism versus communism. Uh, Cold War for decades to come. And you can see how uh, at, at a think, I, I call it at a think tank level, which is the wealthiest in the world will form groups over time that advise. So if we, if that advise the, the leaders below, which is the puppets, right? And then the masters above, which are largely invisible and then think tanks in between. And so uh, when you consider this, they go, we don't want people to have a critical analysis. We we want them to have to delegate their opinion to authority, to an authoritative source, because we want them to know they're not smart enough to review this, to to judge it on their own. And 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 when you when you think about the depth of what that can do, and what it did, right? So there's there's art critics, that's outrageous, and I just go, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, so so really, like, do your homework. It's not what you think. It doesn't mean this artists aren't valid. It doesn't mean everyone's in on it. In fact, almost no one's in on it. You didn't even know what happened, because what happened is certain artists, certain galleries, certain dealers, suddenly they'll get the book deals. Suddenly they'll get all the coverage in newspapers. Suddenly it'll 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 be a trend. It'll be a movement. It'll look organic. It looked like it happened naturally but it didn't. And that's really fascinating to me. Uh, you know, I'm not like perversely attracted to it as much as I'm intellectually fascinated by uh, what it takes to manage civilizations, what civilizations do when they conquer, right? So if we go through history and people like to be history buffs on things, the where I've come to on that and we're covering a lot of ground <laughs> rapidly. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Staging I can where see. We're going. I can see how this translates into the creation of worlds and how everything that has to do with population control and the understanding of that critical mind within that world is a necessary step to creating eventually that world. And and uh, please go on. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can see that you're really driven by this. And the other thing that I wanted to also explore is that odd world indeed is an odd world mm -hmm. in and of itself, and is a world subject to deception in many mm -hmm. ways, 
Mm-hmm. I wonder where did the necessity to create a world like that come from? I think so. Uh, as we as we step back and look at it, it's kind of uh, I had mentioned earlier when we were talking a book called The Mission of Art, written by Alex Gray, that I, I recommend to any school that I wind up giving a talk to, or I go like read this book. Maybe you'll agree with it, maybe you won't. But he goes through history and goes, "What is the mission of art? How does it change cultures? What is the what is the power of an individual that can express themselves in a way?" It's usually an individual in turmoil because you know, the artists are not like the happiest people in the world, right? They're like, "Oh, how do I bear with this pressure? You know, <laughs> this this torment of being an intellectual but creative at the same time." You know, we 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 uh, suffer our pains as creatives, right? Mm. And. Uh, but 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 uh, sorry. Back to your question, and I, I meant to ask that. It's, uh, I meant to answer that directly, but I got a little sidetracked with my sidetrack. To your question again, just a just a hint because I lost it. Yeah, I, I, you know, Wildworld is a world subject to deception in so mm. many ways, and I wonder where did the necessity to create a world like that, subject to deception, where did that come from? So it came from our world because what I learned was uh, so many of the things that I came to believe were true weren't. They were completely manufactured lies, and they served other agendas. And without going through history, you go here, there, there. I mean, there was different events. Uh, Iran-Contra, CIA running drugs, uh, uh, Waco, Texas, the Panama invasion, um, things that were happening in the Cold War that weren't mentioned. I come from a Latvian uh, predominant family that had fled the Bolsheviks and had a lot of people murdered by them. And that was largely still a largely undocumented moment in history of, of, uh, of enormous magnitude, you know? And so I felt like we're living in a very deceptive landscape and, and in that I'm like, how does the individual find their way when we have different competing factions for mindshare? We have just consumerism, you know, you're being bombarded with, no, you need this now. This is better. What are you doing wearing those clothes? You need this year's new fashion, you know? So we, we, we have consumerism sort of bombarding us, uh, aiming to really the 20th century advertising figured out how to make guilt sell or inadequacy sell, you know, before that, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but it was a famous Madison Avenue sort of advertising scientist who had discovered that we can sell a lot more cake mix with guilt than we can with a better product, right? So we saw a shift when products were advertised as this does a better job. You know, you this take, cake tastes better. And they go, do people really care anymore about that? They think they do. But what do they really care about? What the mother really cares about, because she's a working wife now, right? This is this all kind of comes with um, <clears throat> e- equality is not always what it seems as well, right? So you go, well, she's a working mom now and she's feeling guilty. So so she's feeling like, and they do the demographic studies of an audience and you go, the working mom is feeling more like she might not be loving her kids as much as she's supposed to. And so how do we play off of that to sell cake mix, right? So we're gonna make it the mother who cares about their kid bakes cakes, but you don't have the time. So we have an instant baking cake. You just add hot water into this packet, right? And you can be a loving mother without having to really bake a cake. And that sold so many more cakes. It completely changed the foundation of, you know, this was kind of like a Darwinianism layered on top of what we thought was biology, right? Like you saw, it was like, whoa, this guy became, uh, his name is slipping me at the moment, but he, he became a, a, 
a, a deity in the world of advertising and marketing because all of a sudden he realized, stop selling the product. Start playing off of what people feel they need. And so we have consumerism competing for our mindshare. And then we have politics competing for our mindshare. And then we have... Uh, uh, and how many of these things, and let's say medicine, right? But how, like I'm someone who had medical problems who got fixed through Chinese medicine, whereas the West was not giving me answers. It was giving me more problems. So, I'm, you know, it, it, it's kind of like how you might look at health and how you like evaluate what is what is an optimal human being versus one that's just functioning and getting by. It's kind of like the way that Chinese medicine analyzes a human being versus the way Western medicine analyzes a human being. When the West tells me I'm healthy, I take I take some credit. You know, I, I, I'm listening, but I want to hear the Chinese guy tell me how I'm really doing. Right. <laughs> that but is I, so interesting, Lauren. That's yeah. so interesting because uh, myself, I'm also um, interested and I've explored superficially, of course, but I've explored Chinese medicine as well. I, I, I'm not I don't have the knowledge or awareness of an actual uh, professional, of course, mm -hmm. uh, but I do see the resonance that the Western culture and the Eastern culture and how those traditional philosophies and that philosophies that carry medicine and healing through the world, how they can potentially find even a point of contact, maybe mm -hmm. through a conceptual space. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really where true healing comes from, where we can mm -hmm. both connect the smooth elements of the circles and the sharp edges of the square. And we can kind of find that balance. We can say, okay, this and that, and how they both feed off onto each other mm -hmm. to create balance for the human being which is both a circle and a square in some ways i think that's and, a, that's a great analogy actually it, it it really seems like the all of these experiences they're really seeking a form of balance through mm -hmm. contrasting elements which is something that i see a lot uh, not only through your personal life but also in the world of odd world because it seems like a lot of inspiration for the creatures of odd world it comes from human beings, good yeah. human beings and bad human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that process. Uh, so on one, uh, I believe, let's, let's talk about bad human beings. The bet, if you were in movie making and you were taking a good writing course in LA, like Robert McKee's writing or something like that, you know, famous courses, he'd be, he would be like, look, great bad guys never see themselves as bad guys like that's number one right so the guy's like i'm dr evil i'm gonna conquer your world no one's buying that bullshit that's marvel comics kind of stuff right the great bad guy is uh <clears throat> the commandant from schindler's list you know uh the colonel kurtz from from uh apocalypse now uh the uh what was his name in or or Clockwork Orange, the 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 hero of Clockwork Orange is Malcolm. Uh, no, no, Malcolm. I just remember his eyes when he's about to sip that milk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just so. And great actors that play bad guys are like, I don't, I don't play bad guys. I, I just play misunderstood guys. Okay, you know, <laughs> it's like that's what makes them great, because you you or it's like uh, I, I watch all these interviews lately with these mafiosos that have already done time you know hitman uh there's a great sean atwood is a uk he used to be i don't know if you're familiar with this uh 
basically video blogger, but he has a channel. It's called Sean Atwood. He did time in the United States as the ecstasy kingpin, and he got locked up in Arizona. They tried to put him away for a couple hundred years. He served some time. He got out, but he started, he was blogging from prison. And now, like, all these ex-hitmen and cartel people and ex-cops that have been blacklisted for blowing a whistle, like, these crazy diversity of players uh, he interviews. And they're telling you because they already served their time. Right. So it's not like someone who's just lying to you because they don't want to get caught. <laughs> they already did their time. So like, oh, back then. Yeah, this is how we did this guy. You know, this is how we, where we put the body. This is how it went. You know, and you're hearing these stories and you're like, oh, my God. But the, even the top one of the top London gangsters from, you know, the previous turn of the century was uh, interviewed recently. I was listening to him and he's going, they called me a criminal. I, I, I wasn't a criminal. I was a businessman whose business happened to be crime. You know, it's like these guys, I mean, they're legendary gangsters, right? But the way that they talk about it, they're so charming, you know, and it's so engaging. And uh, it's kind of like uh, my father used to say, you know, he died when the shark got killed in Jaws. He cried when the shark got killed in Jaws, you know, or Darth Vader died, <laughs> you know, because he always loved the bad guys, you know. But that being said, it's like you have to – to create good bad guys, I think you you got a part of look at a part of yourself that could be that way. It's because because otherwise you just you just kind of painting a portrait that you don't really understand, and then you're just projecting what you think it's about. And um, you know, chances are that's not going to resonate with people. But you got to get one that you could be like, I could see why he would do these things. Now I'm not saying those are good things, you know, but I could see why he did these bad things, and. Uh, it was there was a moment in Schindler's List where, which I thought was probably one of the greatest movies I would never want to watch twice. You know, it was just so powerful and so brutal. But uh, the the commandant, when uh, was it Ray Finney? I think it was uh, the the actor, and he was he was he, 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 he Schindler was trying to work at him because he knew he was a psychopathic murderer sadist but he was trying to work at him to like you know maybe maybe you forgive once in a while you know and if you remember the the girl with the red jacket or the the kid that, that he sniped out of the the for scratching the bathtub because he cleaned it wrong you know it's like you start to feel for the guy you start to feel his change and and you start to get empathetic towards the bad guy then you see how horrific he still is you know and but that's what really makes a great bad guy is when we show the humanity in them and it's the same for good guys is we need to see more of when when it's just the guy on the white horse and the white hat and, and he's the good guy you know it's pretty boring and it's pretty outdated so we need to see the imperfections of people or the unlikeliness of why someone would become what we would call a hero. And this was very eye-opening to me as well, because when we first started making Abe, uh, I would, the, the, the cold, the wall had just come down not long ago, you know, a couple of years before in Berlin. And, uh, so we were now starting to sell games and talk to people that were formerly behind the wall. And I was talking to Romanians and, uh, Hungarians and I'd say, well, Abe's the hero. And they go, heroes. And I'd be like, what? And the Russians. They go, heroes, the fool. And I was like, what? And they were like, who, who wants to follow a hero? The heroes wind up dead. And I was like, wow, that never occurred to me. You know, like that a culture would 
have been conditioned to arrive at that point where they go, no one wants to be a hero, man. Those they're on, they're in the shallow graves. Like, yeah, they don't, they don't make it. We're not into that. And I was like, wow, that was very eye-opening to me to know that different cultures really had, because of their histories, had completely different impressions of what being a hero meant and, uh, and what being smart and a survivalist meant, you know? And so for the, for the bad guys, I was like, I had in my life uh, been fortunate enough to know a lot of bad guys and, um, you know, just growing up around uh, outlaw bikers as a kid, uh, sort of New England, rusty belt type of towns that had economic challenges and uh, uh, diversities of culture that weren't mixing so well, lots of racial tensions. Uh, and, and but but when you'd meet people, sometimes really dangerous people, there was oftentimes the most charming people. Like they really had the human skills down, you know? Um, and I'm not talking about the, the psycho guy everyone's terrified of because, you know, that's that's a different thing. But I mean, like the masterminds, you know, <laughs> like, whether even like hitmen or mercenaries or just just kind of encountered um, people that had done a lot of different things in their life. And, and it was shocking at times, like you go, who, what? No way that guy he'd be like yeah he was always doing this and he was like whoa and, and <laughs> you're just like never would have known it you know he just seemed like the sweetest grandfather in the world uh, <laughs> my partner sherry had uh had uh hey sherry who did you used to sit by next to the pool and you didn't know it and you talked to him every day <laughs> you ever hear of mickey cohen Mickey Cohen uh, in The Godfather, I think it was Mickey Cohen, where in The Godfather, they went down to uh, Miami and they met with the real boss who lived very humbly. I think that was Mickey Cohen. So Sherry was in a hotel. I think she had uh, gotten the divorce from her first husband. Now she's hanging up. It was an apartment complex. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and in, in Brentwood, you know, Los Angeles, right? And she's like hanging out by the pool and she just sees this old man. And every day he's all alone, you know, and he seems to have a couple guys that come around and serve him and stuff. But every day he's sitting by the pool and he's all alone. So she starts talking to him every day, every day. Right? And then she finds out her friends one day are seeing her talking. They're going, do you have any idea who the fuck you're talking to? And she's like, no, what do you, what do you mean? And she goes, that's Mickey Cohen. It's like the, one of the most famous, infamous mobsters of the era alive, you know, and it, he was the guy. Yeah. He was the one in the Godfather. And so, wow. uh, Mickey, Mickey Cohen, right? She's just, she's this lonely old man and she talks to him every day. And he's wonderful. Right. Lila, oh, you know, a pretty young girl. He's just, you know, having a great time. And she finds out, Holy shit. This is one of the most stone cold killers in this country. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that you really, just don't know. Really translates back to what you were talking about earlier about the, so many layers that are part of, of the world that we live in right now and the communities that we're part of. That's and right. that also draws back to the nature of the diversity in Oddworld. And this mm -hmm. is where I'm really interested now in diving deeper into the world and its dynamics, because just for the people who might not be completely familiar with the Oddworld universe, could you just share with us real quick the different species and how they interact in this world? Sure. So uh, the world was really built on the idea of the, the sort of a broken mirror on the on a reflection, reflecting the dark side of globalization. And that's what I felt like we were all living through. So that was sort of the starting point. And then you go within that, Who's going to represent what? And how does that break down? And what I was thinking was I wanted to 
create a world where the the behavior, so if we'd say, well, this is greed, and this is innocence, and this is empathy, and this is natural balance, you know, if we, if we, or this is holistic. And so if we were looking at these different things, I wanted to turn them uh, into species that really embodied the, the essence most of a human condition or uh, sin maybe we'd call it like if we go the seven sins, you know, so we'd embed embed different personality traits and behaviors into a species. And so that was kind of a starting point. And I go, okay, so the gluckens uh, are, appear to be at the top of the food chain in, in how I wanted to start this universe. And I want to back up for a second and just go, what I was also studying f- sort of fan culture. And I was like, why do people get so strongly attached to certain IPs. And if it was, you know, girls with the Beatles, you know, I was born in the sixties or, and they were nuts for, for the rock stars that they loved. I mean, nuts, like, you know, shutting down cities cause they were just mobbing to pull some hair out of the guy, you know, or, or uh, just crazy, crazy stuff. But we're bikers with Harley Davidson culture, like, like people who took their cultures, Trekkies with Star Trek, you know, Star Wars fans now and be like, what really makes that? resonate. And one of the key factors was there needs to be more depth that the audience knows the creator has behind the world than they can decrypt. And that keeps them engaged if it's smart. Uh, So clever is sort of in its presentation, but smart is kind of in its depth. You know, so if, if they get to the point, it's kind of like you're asking me now, you know, like what was driving that? I know there was more. You know, um, and I was like, why do I the things that I'm really attached to? I know there's more like when I'm studying a Kubrick movie, I want to hear more interviews because I know there was more going on than I was able to decrypt, you know, and things like the X-Files had had a following that strong in Star Trek and Twilight Zone, you know, and a lot of times you saw a continua- continuation of morality plays, uh, which is really, you know, um, the Twilight Zone and Star Trek, right? It was really morality plays, and one would be sci-fi, and the other's just the 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 alternate universe uh, of uh, human behavior. And so, in studying those trends of like, how does a fan culture get there? It's like the world has to be deep. It so to me, the process of creating stories and characters was like they're just little boats floating on an ocean of subtext, and if that ocean is a dry bay and it's shallow they're gonna know after a short while right and there's some content like that today really shallow that's making enormous amounts of money and there's a you know that's always been with us a little bit that gets to another thing which is are the products smarter than the people and that's a really interesting analysis of our time of our moment in time. Um, so these things were leading me towards okay this is what you need for an IP so then okay what is one of the, there was an old Bob Dylan song that reminded me of this. It was like, just when you, uh, you find out, you think, you know, who's King, he's just a pawn in the game. I'm forgetting the lyric exactly, but that was one of the great things. Like you watching star Wars and you say, Oh, well, Darth Vader's the big bad guy. And you go, Oh no, he's just, uh, the, the Sith Lords, the, you know, Palpatine's puppet, you know, or, or mercenary, you know, soldier. And then you're like, whoa, okay, that's a deeper system, you know, and you find out, uh, I think it, yeah, I would have liked it to have gone much deeper there than the, than the series did afterwards. But in that idea, you go, 
okay, so there has to be a lot of layers to the onion. And if people get engaged now and 20 years from now, why are they still peeling it and feeling like they're just getting closer to the essence of it? And I was thinking of it that way. I was like, in 20 years from now, if you play this as a kid, uh, will you have the experience that I had when I was reading Animal Farm as a kid? I thought it was a really interesting story. You know, George Orwell's Animal Farm. Um, I, di I didn't quite understand, but I knew it had something to do with sort of communism uh, and the way uh, people are tricked into beliefs and control systems and, you know, uh, and prejudices and enslavement. You know, you run the full gauntlet. I was like, okay, this, but it was Animal Farm. I kind of liked the animals. You know, I liked the pigs that were, you know, uh, impersonating people and starting to enforce lockdown. Like it was just fascinating. You know, 10 years later, I have a different view of what it was talking about. 20 years later, I was, I was more intrigued because I learned more of what it was talking about. So when I looked at Oddworld, I was like, well, why are we creating something that if people give it their mind share, it will, it might last with them. Now in creating entertainment, that can't be your primary driver, right? Your, your primary driver sort of has to be on the superficial. It has to be, how can it be marketed? How does it get exposed? Why do people already want it? Which is a, a really, you know, kind of tricky thing. It's like, what are they looking for? It's like fishing, you know, they're looking for worms. And if you're using corn, they're not going to eat it. So you need to use worms, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's this, this way, this is consumerism. I love yeah. that metaphor when when you talk about the ships and the little boats on the surface of the water and the depth of the water as the world. And this is where I really want to go and explore because you just talk about it as a sentence, but I'm sure that there are years and years of work behind it. And so the first question that I would like to ask you in regards to creating this world is, where do you even start? You have this idea of this IP yeah. of this world, but how do you make that water so deep? How do you make that happen? And where you have a blank page in front of you, how well, do you make it happen? I think the key is really research. And and it, I found, I did a lot of things. I do a lot of things as a craftsman. You know, I've, I've tried to engage a lot of different skills in a wide range of crafts related around filmmaking, computer graphics, games, uh, illustration. And, um, but in that, it's like the, and, and at times I've been, which one do I really enjoy? Because some of these, I just kind of can't stand. I just have to do them, you know? <laughs> you know, it's like, you might like sewing, but the part of cutting the cloth you might hate, you know, and you're, you're not good at it. So I was asking myself this and I come back to research is what I really enjoy. Research is what I enjoy the most. And so I found myself believing that, uh, like when I watched Joseph Campbell's being interviewed at, in Lucas's library about the power of myth. If you saw that series, uh, it really woke me up to what Lucas was doing in his products that I kind of felt a little bit before, but when I saw Joseph Campbell's, uh, interview series that done by, uh, I forget who interviewed him, but uh, I think, you know what I'm talking about? Really famous interviewer from PBS. Um, it was, it was, it revealed a whole nother world of death that uh, to me got summarized as it's samurai monks in space, right? That's Star Wars, samurai monks in space. And you go, well, what does that mean? What is samurai monks? Well, then you got a whole world of stuff to di dive into. And so for me, when I was looking at this, I was like the dark side of globalization. So what was I noticing about globalization? Well, most people didn't really see what was going on. At the time, I would be... I was working at Rhythm and Hughes, which was uh, an amazing visual effects company in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, they won lots of Academy Awards and lots, lots of 
lots of achievements, great people. I was working there and I would be sitting in lunch sometimes. And, you know, you're younger and you speak your mind a lot, a lot more than maybe you should. And, and uh, I remember sitting in lunch one day and we were just talking about something. And I was, because I loved to fish as a kid, I spent a lot of time in the outdoors and I saw a lot of impact on the environment. And now I was learning about the uh, the burning of the rainforest for the raising is cheap meat for the fast food companies. And I was like, wow, that that's interesting. Like the thing that's killing our planet is being sold to you with a happy face logo and a cheaper meal. So you can get through the day better with more convenience. But are you really just, are we really just driving ourselves uh, into a convenient grave? You know, are we just heading the plane towards a cliff and not even, you know, and not even realizing what we're doing for the sake of convenience and, uh, you know, satisfying our taste buds, satisfying our, our perceived needs, whatever it may be. So I was looking at our real world and I was learning a lot about the real world and I was meeting people in New York. Uh, I had a unique perspective anyway, because my dad was on nuclear subs for a lot of years. And so that was kind of interesting because as a little kid, uh, he was involved with, uh, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis and shit like that. So it was kind of right in the middle of some of the most intense Cold War stuff that was going on. And he had a unique perspective, which is never believe what you read in the media. Never. And my grandfather was the same. He came out of Latvia, you know, fleeing the Bolsheviks. And they were like, never believe what the government tells you. <laughs> you know? And my, my dad would say, I've seen a lot of things and I've never seen it reported accurately, not once. <laughs> and so I had this sort of skeptical view of what was going on, which I think made it easier for you to um, start to decrypt and analyze what might be going on versus what you're told is going on or being sold is going on. And, and so in that, I was like, well, what's going on on planet Earth, really? And what are we, what are our threats, really? Not the ones we're being told to be afraid of, but what are really the things that are probably going to sink us? You know, like right now, just two things, right? Plastics and bees, Right. So oh, carbon, if we only give our governments all of our money, they'll reduce the, plan, pl the temperature of the planet. And look, we have all these scientists that agree. Right. Anyone who believes that seriously, like, like check yourself, because anyone who thinks you we're going to give money to these people that lie to us about starting wars, that lie to us about the benefits of certain treatments or drugs or things like that, you know, that are, that are basically, it's like I say about media personalities, you know, you go, where did you hear that? Oh, so-and-so, he's really good. I go, so-and-so, the guy who's making $3 million a year to tell the truth, right? Who gets paid on this planet millions of dollars a year to tell the truth? No one, no one. That's not why you get paid millions of dollars as a newscaster. Right. You get paid because you know how to lie really well. You can hold the message and be paid for it. No one. Look, how's Julian Assange told the truth? How's he doing? All right. Snowden told the truth. How's he doing? How many people are covering it uh, as a crisis? And, and how much airtime is it getting? Almost none. So, so my point to all that was, was uh, and I don't, I don't find a fall into any individual camp of ideology. I'm, I'm more like a 100,000-foot orbital critic. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure where I really belong, but I'm just, like, fascinated by the view. And so in the real world, I'm like, we're, we're being sold a lot of bullshit. So who are we really? We're really this sort of innocent party born into a system that... Uh, 
were, were I used to think, I was like, yeah, it's kind of amazing that school for free taught me how to read, taught me about science. So I was like, wow, this is really good. It took me about 40 years to realize a lot of what I've been told was for a reason. A lot of what I had been taught and I learned was for a reason. And it shaped my condition of thinking that took a long, really long time to break out of. It's kind of like if you were brought up really religiously, uh, then it, it can be really hard to just question that sense of faith that you were told. If you do, you know, this is what happens to your immortal soul. Like, like, you know, you really get, I've, I've watched this with people and I experienced it myself. People, um, I was told certain things as a youth, you know, I believed them and I was terrified to challenge those beliefs. And that's real sort of, you know, mind control, right? As you make it so that someone resists even contemplating a subject any deeper than, than they're comfortable with. And so looking at the real world, you know, to answer your question, looking at the real world provided me the, the, the fabric. And I go, if I just flip what's going on in the real world and humorize it and extrapolate and abstract it a bit, I will have an infinite amount of resources to, to, as, a, as a writer, as a creator, to reflect off of. If I create an imaginary situation and I'm not basing it off of that depth, then I'm going to run out over time. You know, it's kind of like the Simpsons. Remember when it was great and then it wasn't, <laughs> it was like, it, it was, I don't know if you've ever watched the Simpsons, but it was probably one of the most socially critical, accurate shows on television. Right. And then whatever, through the years, you know, creators, writers, things, it sort of changed and it didn't have that, that potent essence that used to have adults just laughing their ass off because it was the only place they were seeing truth on TV you know, in some respects. But because it was wrapped in sarcasm, you know, it had that George Carlin effect, right? Or, or uh, Dave Chappelle effect where they can talk about things that are really uncomfortable and we're just laughing our ass off at it. So humor has that, in a sense, that little bit of that awe impact ability. Like if we can laugh, then we'll excuse a lot of things. We'll, we'll align to a lot of things if we can laugh. The more serious we want to get, then you're getting more into like documentary territory, right? And, and how do they do at the box office? Not anywhere near as good as the drama, you know, or, or as good as the sci-fi film in general. And so I didn't want to make documentaries. I wanted to make things that people spent more time and mind share in. And so I felt like if we reflect off the real world, but not the real world you think you know, the real, real world that is more likely there, then I'll have this infinite material to play off of. And the sarcasm, like, you can't stop this planet from behaving as silly as it does. You know, if you really look at, like, political campaigns and average marketing campaigns and uh, pop stars that they're trying to promote that don't deserve it, you know, like, you can't stop them from doing it because they just can't help themselves. They're going to force feed more and more and more. So you're just going to have an endless supply of material to pull off of as a, as a creator, as a writer. And so that was my essence of it was the flip side of this world. But you really had to go into more of, I guess, a lot of what would be considered conspiracy uh, avenues. And um, and people, you know, and even there is like an instant shut off valve, right? Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Like, right? You keep telling yourself that, you know, so that's wow. like. Yeah, that's really fantastic, Lauren. I got to tell you, because uh, now that you speak of it that way, it creates a lot of clarity around the roots 
of the world of odd world and in so many ways i can see that you really believe in the power of instead of framing the truth of shaping a reflection of the truth so that that truth can be more accepted and yeah so that's yeah. where it really really comes together because in odd world there is a constant philosophical stimulation embedding the fabric of the world and I'm really curious, how did it become so deeply integrated with the characters and their environments? I, I, this is, is kind of a challenge point for me because there's so much more I always wanted to do. And then there's what you can do. And with that, I mean, in time and money and condition and team and, and skills. And, and, and it's funny because people always go, well, when you, when you delivered that game, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. don't think games like films are what the director wanted to deliver you got to look at what we could deliver right and that doesn't go on the wrapper and that doesn't go on the commercial but it's like usually what we deliver is nowhere near what we really wanted to deliver it's it's what we you know because we're building things that have never been built before if we'd say oh we're coming out with this new game and it's everything you've played in the past right? no one cares it's got to be something new or if you're launching with a new system i hope you don't mind me bouncing around like this but i think it's all relevant or if you're working with a new system, like let's say PlayStation 5, you know, there's only one reason we got highlighted significantly from Sony on PlayStation 5. And it's happened to us in the past with PlayStation 1. It happened with uh, Xbox. You know, we just happened to be there at a certain time. But it wasn't by accident. You know, these are things you choose. And you're like, how do we get more visibility on something? If we can be on that new hardware platform when they need content and we can be there at the right time. I learned this from Derek, Dave Ferry with uh, Earthworm Jim, you know, because he, he was able to parlay these deals. I don't know if you remember Shiny Entertainment and this, but uh, really smart guy. And. I watched him surf the wave of new, I call it surfing the wave of a new console system. And you can get all this marketing that you don't have to pay for if you have the goods. And the goods are you need to be pushing those chips to make it shine in a way that the previous generation didn't. And if you can do that, you can probably get on stage with Bill Gates. Really, like literally. And, and I wound up, you know, kind of on stage at different times with a number of the richest people in the world at different times. Because I make games. It's, it makes no sense. But this is, you know, it, it's like if you can show off that new hardware that helps them sell multi-billion dollars in, in uh, you know, product and build really like enormous pillars of, of an industry then or of a business for a corporation, then you can get exposure, right? And exposure is never to be underestimated, especially in today's world. It's all about exposure. I tell people all the time, I go, I know you don't want to hear this but it's not about ideas anymore. It's about, you know, because people say, I got this idea, but I'm, I'm really, really need you to sign a non-disclosure. I go, yeah. I go, I'm not going to sign it. And neither is anyone else who knows what they're doing because no one cares about your ideas. They care about your ability to execute ideas. And then as you get more complicated things, films, games, building cars versus building your own hot rods, you know, building a factory versus, versus building a custom model, you're into a whole different world of complexity and you have to measure these things or, you, or you're not, probably, you know, this chances of your success are going to be greatly challenged. And so uh, bringing that back into, you know, your direct question on that is if, if 
And I admit I'm getting I'm getting a little lost on my on myself. So just bring me back to your sure. Yeah, your the point. the question was about the integration of such a philosophical world. Okay. Uh, in the Got lives it. of the characters of Abe and the Gluxons and the Zleeks and even all the animals like the Paramites and the Scrubs and how all that came together in this very philosophical. Uh, so let's fabric. take. So let's take Abe, and thank you for the reminder. I'm sorry I'm going to ask you this, but uh, it, like I said, I'm on the tail end of just coming out of six years of enormous crunch for us. It was just crazy. But um, so thank you for your patience. And the, so Abe, I was like, if we start Abe uh, not as someone you wish you would like to be, which I felt like a lot of games were doing, you know, muscle-bound characters with big guns and, you know, all kinds of skills. It's all great. Uh, but not as that, but someone that you more likely are. And who do you feel like you might be today? Well, what are we dealing with? You know, we have childhood diabetes. We have obesity. We have uh, suicide, depression, anxiety, uh, all, all types of things that people are suffering. Loneliness is greater than any other measurement in history. And we have more people on the planet ever in history. So how is this the case? And so I was looking at that and I was like, well, okay, so why don't we start with the, with an underdog that is truly under the whole, uh, really hanging at the bottom of the food chain. What's the worst job in the world? <laughs> like, where's the shittiest existence? And I was looking at, um, the shipbreakers. I had just learned about these guys in Bangladesh and uh, India, where all the big cruise ships and military, you know, all different types of ships are being sent to be recycled. These ways that these people were living, I mean, barefoot. So, so you had the most high tech things, a cruise ship or a, a uh, oil a container ship, you know, big uh, port ship. And this is like, you know, pretty much it's not going to the moon, but it's pretty much utilizing the latest in high technology, engine technology, navigation technology, stress resistance for the open seas, you know, all the all this knowledge embedded in it. And it's built in really impressive places. But where is it recycled? And that was fascinating to me. So you go, this is the garbage dump of of the world we like to look at. And then here's the world of what it becomes on the back end of of this, you know, glory that it had being a Disney cruise ship for years. And then where it gets run into the beach in India, you'd see these people coming out in bare feet and totally toxic to the most hazardous conditions you can imagine. Right. In the United States, the most dangerous job. I think this is still the case, but, it, but for the longest time, it was garbage men. You know, people doing garbage. That was the most dangerous job, the highest risk of having back injuries of regular industries, falling off a truck, falling off the ice, uh, you know, throwing out your back, lifting weight, uh, getting stuck with syringes, getting stuck with, you know, basically the most dangerous job in the country. And I was like, no one knows that. And people don't appreciate garbage men enough. You know, so I was just kind of like, I always had that little guy like, how come we don't appreciate garbage men as much? They, look at their job. It sucks. It's terrible. They work hard. They get hurt. It's dangerous. Pay them more. So I kind of had that outlook, you know, I was like, okay. <clears throat> so most people in the world, if they're going to be our audience, then at least they've got electricity and somehow they have game systems. So that now we're into... Uh, if we go back into the 90s, you're like, okay, maybe we're at penetrating a sixth of the possible planet of people, you know, and and then you think about it now, that's at least quadrupled or, or, you know, quintupled since that time. And so I was like, okay, so this is our audience. So the chances are they're not totally at the bottom of the food chain, but I think they feel that way. And 
And so how do I make a character that embodies not who they want to be, but who they might actually feel like? And that was a lot of design on Abe. And I worked with uh, Steve Olds and designing him. He was the production designer, brilliant production designer. And I was like, so so he's not from this world, but he needs to be endearing, but he's not the best looking guy in the world. And he's not, you know, uh, he's not who you want to be, but he's probably who you are. And that's, that's who we're going to focus in on. And we're going to start him off in basically a shipbreaker of Bangladesh. The other uh, thing that I was researching more about and learning about was people uh, with PTSD and depression that were working in factory farms, you know. Um, and so when we think about, I'm not a vegan. I love a great steak. It's, it's not my trip. You know, I, I hope someday I can become a little more enlightened on my diet, but I still, you know, I'm a carnivore. But the fact is, is when uh, when I looked at the uh, suicide rates of people that were, you know, in slaughterhouses for killing cattle, killing pigs, killing this, uh, or the uh, disassociation that they start to experience, which is very similar to like gulag prison guards, um, Prison, prison, prison guards in different bad parts of the world, you know, even the United States, it's like they start to get disassociated because the daily encounter with trauma and uh, unfairness, injustice, uh, tragedy, horror is something that they're experiencing so regularly that they, they just they get disassociated from reality. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. You know, we take it for granted. It's sold to us with a happy face logo, but the guys that are doing the work, they, uh, psychopaths tend to enjoy it, but normal people, uh, start to have a lot of problems with it. And this was, I was also looking at new types of injuries that were emerging like uh, repetitive motion sy uh, syndrome, you know, uh, carpal tunnel, things like this. Cause we were getting it on the computers. I started getting it pretty, uh, Fortunately, it was a yoga yogi uh, Sikh who who told me how to fix it rather than go get operated on it. You know, carpal tunnel with uh, ergonomics in your hands and people on keyboards. This is a disease that people used to get, a so-called disease. Uh, if they were working on factories, like doing a repetitive motion of a chicken killing every day, right? They'd start to build up hand lock and rheumatoid arthritis, like carpal tunnel um, without getting too into it. And I was like, well, these are really interesting things, you know, like there's injuries that come with modernization. You know, there's injuries that uh, we're, we're computer programmers and people working on computers, but for too many hours a day with bad ergonomics. And we're now getting the same health effects that the person working in the um, really uh, a minimum wage earning slaughterhouse job is getting. You know, so it was like, this is interesting. That's kind of an interesting equalizer, you know, for for uh, spectrums of society. So getting back to Abe, I was like, if we can start him in a place where it's just God awful, but they've been completely lied to um, and they have to break out of their programming. I felt like, well, that's all of us in this world, whether we realize it or not, we're not born wise. We might be born clever. We might be born smart, but we're not born wise. Wise is an achievement. And it doesn't come easy, in my opinion. You know, I think there's, I think some people are blessed where empathy and compassion comes easier to them. And, and you know, thank God, whatever we believe in, thank that, thank the universe for that. But uh, uh, we, it's hard work, like the artist, this is a classic uh, condition of the artist, right? Is, is it's the, it's a pain of the world that's driving them to want to create and reflect that in some way, shape or form that they think they can add value. Uh, 
where they think, uh, I, I need to express this myself, but if I do it well, a lot of people can benefit from it. So it has a nutritious value. Lauren, now, yeah. what do you think defines wise? Uh, I think wise is seeing through the obvious. And we're, condi- we're not raised to do that. And so we're, we're, we're put through school systems that teach us things that aren't necessarily true, um, or I should say aren't necessarily good for us. Like for an example, in the public school system in the United States, there's almost zero uh, education on personal financial management. Probably the most important thing to people to know today, aside from, you know, ABCs and, and some basic uh, skills is financial management, how not to get into debt, right? How not to spend more than you can make, how to save so you can accumulate, you know, how you can dig yourself out of a uh, indebted existence. And the more you know history, like I look back and I go, well, this, this all began with what was called Babylonian slit debt slavery. And they figured out we can control people easier if they think they're free than if, you know, we got them in change and we're, and we're locking them up and that carries certain expenses and people aren't really motivated. So we don't get the most out of the worker, but we'll, we'll whip them harder, you know, to get what we need. And you're like, it didn't, you know, it, it, it took some, some millennia and centuries for people to realize, or I should say even the inflictors of that to realize it, it just wasn't good business sense. And we have to find our way to wisdom because it's not on a channel. It's not being provided to us. It's certainly not coming from a public company whose interest, and this is what I think is kind of the, the curse of, of, uh, it's hard to say, but let's say our current existence in the capitalistic model. And I, th- and I, and I, I'm not anti-capitalist. I just feel like we need to evolve into a conscious capitalism, meaning, and I guess capitalism is a strange word, but really meritocracy. You know, I do believe in a meritocracy because it, and I believe in equal opportunity. Um, and so it, it gets really complicated, right? But we are certainly not taught how to succeed. We are not taught how not to find in, fall into financial debt. And today we have increasing numbers of suicides in the United States. We have kids who just have, once they find out how much their college paid for, um, they're starting to kill themselves. I'm, and, and I'm not saying this is an epidemic, but it's happening. And they didn't realize, they go, I'm a half a million dollars in debt for art school, right? It's like, it's just so overwhelming to them. You know, we've seen this happen where it ends really bad. So for me, I was like, how do we create the uh, compassion for a character that's going to go through that experience of becoming wise, but starts off really naive and ignorant, but still has, and this is what I thought was a killer chemistry to Abe and necessity, but still has sort of a spark of innocence that really is the, the, the central pillar to his integrity and the decisions he's going to make. And so he's not the smartest guy in the world, but he's going to be, he's got to use what he's got to use all that he has to succeed. And that's mostly mind share. You know, it's mostly the brain because he's not like, you know, the most physically able, he's not the best shooter. He's certainly not a Kung Fu expert, you know? And this is where it really comes together. And this is what makes Abe one of my favorite characters ever, because not only I can see myself through his physical 
weakness per se, let's say, uh, but through his innocence. And that innocence is what makes you relate with Abe. Still, that innocence is contrasted by his trickster element. Yeah. Because he is a trickster, right? And he yeah. to save all of his friends, of his species, all of his Mudokon's friends. He basically tricks the antagonists and the slicks and all the guards in a variety of ways, but he's basically tricking them. He's mm -hmm. not fighting them directly. He's always mm -hmm. finding ways around them. And that's really what makes him a trickster. And that's and the fox, right? That's right. That's the right. Fox. That's right. So that works it, so well. Yeah. So if we look at it metaphorically, he's kind of the fox without the fangs, you know, mm. and the Native Americans, like the fox was at was the, was the creator, right? The fox was way up high on the, on the, uh, uh, pyramid of importance of deities and, and uh, uh, animal animal guides, right? Spirit guides, the fox, because it was a trickster, but it was also a creator. It was also clever, but it also loved to play, you know. And uh, these things, I was like, I was I was looking at that. I was like, what is the spirit animal? Abe is kind of a fox, but without the fangs. And and that exact sentence I just created now, right? It's not like I was I was thinking of that, but as you bring it up, it's like dead on, and. And so it's like, okay, and what is it in us that when we lose it, we become less? And, and this, I was wondering, I was like, I've seen things, you know, I've had, uh, my, my whole family's dead, dead now. Um, it, it, lots of challenges that a lot of people experience with just, you know, ordinary lower middle-class people trying to figure out their way. Uh, our baggages, things like this, how we see people change. Um, and I think when we lose our innocence, when we lose our light heart, we're doomed. And I really mean this. And it's not like I, I, I think, oh, you, you, you no longer have a light heart. You're on the enemy side of things. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we become lost and we start making really bad decisions for the rest of us. And the thing that I wanted to embrace with Abe, because I believe this is necessary for all of us, uh, is that we have to retain the childhood glee of how we once looked at things. And it saddens me when I when I see some kids, I've seen some really tragic stories knowing, you know, um, child services workers and things like this. And I don't even know how to do their job, like how these kids grew up. So I'm, I'm tragically impacted when I see kids that didn't have a chance to be kids and uh, just grew up hardly having to defense themselves and so their innocence was lost before they even had a chance doesn't mean it's not regain regainable sorry for my innocence here <laughs> running around barking <laughs> is there something you would change about abe now many years after you did the first game <sighs> yeah, well i i, I kind of did a little with soulstorm I, f I felt so it was a couple of things um just at a very practical design level uh, the creator of the design of Abe, uh, Steve Olds, he, he was kind of really upset at a certain point because then we're putting him in the game and he's like, that doesn't look like Abe. And I'm like, look, we can't make it look like the drawing shit. We just the amount of polygons we have, the rendering time, the, the who we have for resources, the, we just can't. This is, this is, I know it's not Abe as you drew him. <laughs> right but this is this is where we are with technology and he was really upset by that because he felt like it didn't look like Abe, you know and um and the other so there was one is just a, a visual design which isn't so much your question but it's relevant and then the other was uh to your question is i wanted abe to be less of a comedian 
and more of someone someone sort of continually going through in a uh, epiphany sort of existential moments of realization, you know, and I feel like in the, in the previous games, he was kind of, you know, a, a little more humorous, you know, it was a little more comedy. And part of that reason is we just didn't have time. It was kind of like, I felt, I felt, I don't mean time in the production, but also time in the, in the game with the amount of cycles, with how much we could process with all these things. It was like slapstick humor in the beginning of Abe worked better, just like it worked better for silent films. If you, if you didn't have all these other things, then you resorted to an exaggerated sense of, of behavior. Uh, you, you kind of kick back and punt on comedy because it'll, if you can get a laugh, at least you can keep a little more entertained and engaged with the story. Uh, I never liked that he farted. Um, you know, was, we were kind of having some fun with it, but, uh, and I was like, I don't want to be known. I don't want Abe to be known for the guy that does those things. Like that's not what he's really about. And, you know, it got in there and it lasted a, f- a few games and stuff like that. So on Soulstorm, we had a, a chance to, uh, really resolution up the characters and people were like, wow, Abe really changed. And I was like, not if you go look at his original drawings. So he's more of the original drawing than anything we had previously done. So I think I haven't talked to Steve Olds in years, but I think hopefully he's a little happier. You know, that his what he drew is actually adding up to the database. Uh, then, yeah, there is there is something there in terms of Abe's character because the moment you put a character in a world and you put the world out there, that character is everybody's character. And I think that many people yeah. really loved the fact that Abe could be the character that could fart, but not only could fart, but could possess his own farts and let them <laughs> explode to kill other people. Like the first time I saw that, I think I think I just went nuts. And I still show it to some of my friends. You see, there was this video game where you could do this. And they said, what? And they would just go nuts because it's so peculiar. But that peculiar, it fits so well in Oddworld as well because it's... It's it's funny, but it's also dark. Thinking that you can yeah. literally just kill someone with an exploding yeah. part. It's just so ridiculous and out there. And- I wish I could take credit for that, but that was actually I think that was Paul O'Connor's idea. You know, because because where we were really, it's like necessity is the mother of invention, right? It's not like we said, oh, if you could do this, it would be great. No, what we had was a terrible game engine. It was absolutely brutal, and it made the development of Abe's Odyssey just a nightmare it was so hard and people worked so hard but then then we were like we were ready to make the second one and then the publisher uh i talk about this in my ars technica interview but the publisher was like no we need a game next year you know not not two and a half years i was like what are you talking about just just use that same engine you know you'll be fine just do the second part of the quintology but in nine months we'll give you as much money as you know i was like what shit this isn't what the plan was you know and so we were stuck with this shitty engine that we had to deliver a game on in nine months and then we're like but it's got to be a new game right so this is why it had scrab scan and paramounts again because we didn't have time to wire new characters into a really clunky you know half-assed engine and that's not anyone's fault it's just you know we're we took the tools that we could and then we built on what we could and you know you, you wish it was a lot better so now we're trying to figure out, like, what do we do new that doesn't just make it Abe's Odyssey more, right? You know, a more continuation of Abe's Odyssey gameplay. How do we make it new? And it was like we were so strapped for time 
and code uh, capabilities. And it was so fragile. Like if, if we messed with certain things, we just unravel a whole, you know, code is just, uh, if it's not great at the, at the core, you unravel a mess. So you're just trying to, it's like a ship with all kinds of patches over it. You know, you're like, don't take it into the high seas. And they're like nine months, let's do the high seas. And you're like, oh <laughs> shit. And so what we, what we did is like, what can we do? And we're like, well, he's got farts. And then, and then it was like, well, what if he, and we were like, well, what kind of new weapons can he have? You know, it's, it really, it didn't come out of it. Like, this is a brilliant idea. It came out of it. Like what it's squeezing out of, out of a rock that didn't want to produce any more, you know, water. We're squeezing that. And it came down to, well, what if we possess the farts? And then it was like, it was like, okay, that's pretty funny. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was pretty, pretty funny and oh, gross and man, disgusting. It's, I hilarious. Had it's just hilarious, man. And I got to tell you, I think there is, there is, there is a memory attached to that when I was growing up that has just, it's just been stuck there forever. And yeah. I, I got the chance to replay the game through an emulator, you know, just a few years ago. And then from there on every summer, I would just pick it up and roam oh, around. Nice. But when I get, when I get, when I get to possess those farts, man, I just turn into a baby, you know, I just turned into my, my baby when I was eight or 10 years old. And, and I remember really delving into the world outside of rupture farms and mm. Abe's precise journey to saving the Murakons, but also getting to explore the Necron and what that meant and what all those elements out, out there, like the temples of the scrubs and the paramites, mm -hmm. what they would mean. And so I, I'm very curious to ask you, mm -hmm. what did you want to create and what was the design around scrubs and paramites, the duality of these two animals to represent mm -hmm. all of the creatures of those few games at the beginning? And also what do they represent in regards to Abe? and his journey to acquiring his powers. Right, so there's, there's kind of a number of questions there. So I'll, t I'll take it in this order and I'll start with why the trials and why what was outside was different from what was inside. So one, I wanted to just have a character that was insulated to an outside world so much so that they didn't even see the moon. Right, that they were forced to live in these factories. Some of that was being inspired by what I was seeing happening in China with the chip making companies. Um, you know, you're probably familiar with suicide people jumping off the buildings. So rather than increase in policies, they just put nets around it. You know, it's, it's kind of like rather than change, we just prevent, you know. So it's kind of you know, certain ironies there that are inspiring when you have a properties like ours for, for content, right? And, uh, quiet and uh so that was on on one level and then on the other level is like what are we missing in our path to become an adult right or as males you know what are we missing where's our trial to manhood and the fact is that's lost now so that was one thing we don't have a a trial to manhood anymore. It used to be, you know, if you were in the African tribe, they were like, you're the age, come back with some lion's teeth around your neck as a new necklace or boar's tusks, or don't come back at all. You know, it was like, they, they put you out there and you had to make your way and you had to return. You know, you go back to real extremes of this was like Sparta, you know, and how they raised their young. Um, so one was like, as a youth today, we're missing that trial to become something more that we had to risk our life to achieve and so that's why the trials and um and then it was like the other big component to this is where do our answers lie do our answers lie in the lab 
in the factory with the scientists? Or do our answers possibly lie in the indigenous wisdoms that we've been wiping out? And where do, they, where do they live today? I think today we have to reincorporate that understanding to, and then process with our new understandings, our scientific understandings, and then become something more. But that we've left out this other one that had a lot of history and a lot of roots and a lot of validity. That's one of our big problems now is instead of going and listening to the indigenous for their wisdoms, all we're interested in is their trademarks to their to their concoctions and their medicines and then we trademark it and then we make it illegal for them to produce it right so this is you know the theft of of uh, indigenous and shamanic concoctions by pharmaceutical companies is a whole nother largely uh People have an idea of this stuff, but any one of these is a very thick volume of a book that you could, you know, dive deeper and deeper into and be shocked by what you learn. So I was like, okay, the trials are missing and the answer is in the old world. I think more of our answers are in the old world than in our future world. And and if we're going to have a future world, we need to understand our, our history a lot better and understand other histories a lot better or or. Uh, practices and engagements a lot better. And so when you look at shamanic cultures, indigenous cultures, which are very hard to define, to define, you know, anthropologists think they define it and they always do a really crappy job because they want to, they want to have a, a good label for something, but it's really abstract and it deals with things that we don't understand very well with all of our science. So for Abe to escape the farm, I want him coming out of our world, our world where we drive to McDonald's and we get our happy meal and um, that gets us through the day. And if, uh, uh, you know, I remember just being raised, you know, at times by a single mom, um, you know, going through divorces, whatever. And, uh, and this, this, just to touch on this larger question, I was like, this is why I didn't want to have it based in the real world. Because I didn't want to show McDonald's or Burger King in a certain light. And people were like, hey, man, that's how I feed my kids, all right? Fuck you. And you could you could imagine people being that way, you know, because I, I could be that way. I'd be like, you know, you're, you're knocking on the thing and I need to depend on. That's very nice and highfalutin of you. But what about me? I got to feed my kids. I got three kids and I got $7 a day. How do I get through the day if McDonald's isn't involved? You know, I can't, you know, that was a discussion I never wanted to have open up. I'd rather keep it more in a philosophical real, realm than sort of step on someone's, you know, on someone's day or, or way. And so Abe begins in the world where he's fully indoctrinated to misinformation. What makes him special, and this is something, man, I really hope to be able to, to do the movie or a Netflix series of Oddworld. And I think we're getting closer to that possibility because I really, like, I would have the whole first season take place just in Rupture Farms. Like, what was the life? What are they being taught? What, why is Abe different? What did he have that's different from all the others? And I never had a chance to really reflect this in the game. And we've got lots of storyboards and lots of notes and I've written lots of scripts that never make it in just out of practicality, you know, but what made him different is his connection to the animals. And so as he would sleep at night, he'd hear one cry, but no one else sort of noticed, but he'd be like, no, there's something wrong with that one. Can't you tell? And then he'd, you know, sneak out and kind of risk his, his uh, comfort zone to sneak out and go care for a mother who's giving birth, who's having a problem of a cattle. You know, but he I've, I've seen people and I've always been close to animals and uh, uh, they 
they are working a lot harder to communicate with you than we typically realize. And they have their own wisdoms, you know, um, and, and we like to write these things off as things like, well, that's just instinct, which is kind of the one a, a blow off word that I hear scientists use a lot. Uh, well, that's just instinct. And I go, oh, really? Well, please ex explain instinct for me, please. Right? Yeah, you can't. You 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 know we can listen to Richard Dawkins go. Well, it's just these chemicals. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remove consciousness, and maybe that makes sense. Except consciousness is at play. You don't understand anything about consciousness. Smartest people in the world will tell us that. You know, Roger Penrose or or whoever will tell us how little we understand about the brain and consciousness. And so, um, with with where we were going with with Abe in this journey, if he starts off in that world then he's starting off like we are indoctrinated and then we're just going to turn up the volume and make it ridiculous right but it's his connection to animals and his willingness to listen and 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 try and process what's going on and then what he was suffering because he had basically been someone that lived in a in a slaughterhouse that was focused more on he in his role i had him as a uh, floor sweeper because it was easier right and, and so we go, okay, that was going on too. But really he was kind of a midwife to the animals to help them breed because that, that was product. And he was just really good at it. But the reason he was good at it is because he listened to them and he paid attention to them. He's like, can't you see she's, she's got a hurt foot? Can't you see she's struggling and trying to tell us? Can't you see that's a cry of pain and not a... So his empathetic nature is what allowed him to connect to other species. And so that was the beginning of he never lost his heart. And the other guys in the farm were becoming just just the products of the farm and eventually they would and that was the the sort of metaphorical uh pun of it all is eventually they do become the product right like like it's the soil and green of you know and so with uh with that and we'd say okay so we're dealing with characters that are embedded in a misinformed world where everything around them is propaganda except those things that are living and then those things are all wrapped up in this world as well and compartmentalized and and forced into being things that they're a lot more than and so abe doesn't know about the outside world yet and when he does uh he realizes that you know, he's in something he had no awareness of whatsoever. And one of the first things he starts to discover is these trials. Now, these trials were something that in in history, in indigenous cultures, you know, let's take Native Americans or Aborigines, you know, Aborigines like it's time for your walkabout, right? Well, not everyone came back from the walkabout. <laughs> you know, not everyone came back from the boar hunt. Not everyone came back from the buffalo hunt. It was like they risked their lives to prove something and that made them wiser right it gave them more status in society and things like this but they now knew what it was like to confront a lion right and that that was something that that made a boy become a man in a certain culture and i'm not saying we that's what we should be doing killing lions to become men but what i'm saying is that ritual was lost and now what we have is a lot of man boys literally we have people making lots of money people with a lot of power and they still have never really risen in their own wisdom and capability development, they're just shrewd or they're clever or they've been taught well, or they went to the Ivy league and they know economics better, you know, but they're still like, it, when you look at some of these, some of these people, the decisions to make the, what you hear about the relationships later and how powerful they are and how immature they are. You're like, yeah, we're, we're kind of really lacking this, this rite of passage. So they were right of passages. And then we get into the paramites and the scraps 
what we were doing there and what I really wanted to achieve was something that would happen that I experienced uh, as a kid. I had a paper route. And then as uh, a kid going to school, I was also uh, working in the South Bronx, which was the burned out neighborhood. It was called Fort Apache in the United States. If you've ever seen a movie called Wolfen, it was highlighted, the South Bronx. It basically looked like uh, London after World War II. It was just all burned out from a different kind of cultural uh blowback that had happened with rent control and landlords burning down their own buildings because uh, they were all just losing money, which led to a decrepit society. So I was working there <laughs> in, the, in the Bronx, right? And, and at times I was walking to uh, work at, you know, 4.35 a.m. through, you know, like maybe from the subway station to the, a big produce terminal in South Bronx. And I'd see some really, uh, I mean, really the, 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 at that time, it was kind of, I think, what the worst of poverty in the United States was going through. And, um, but there was a lot of wild dogs down there. And they would, uh, I have a friend who's a dog bite attorney. He's in Los Angeles. And he says, like, at any one time, there's 50,000 classified attack dogs that are loose in Los Angeles every day. And he deals with the kids that get chewed up. And, you know, it's really horror stories. So I was like, huh. Um, when I was... When you when you encounter an animal in the woods, or you encounter a stray kind of wild dog in an urban decayed environment alone at night, you get this feeling of being hunted, and uh, you you have this dynamic of something you're not you're not exchanging words. I mean, you might be talking a lot of shit, but it's not it's not getting processed by the the dog that's interested in you for a meal or a threat or however it's seeing you. But there was a dynamic there. It was like you know, one dog would be one thing, but two dogs and you would watch their, their bravery escalate. And then three dogs and you're basically starting to watch like, you know, hyena behavior. And, uh, I was fascinated with the stuff and it was, I used to catch snakes and snapping turtles and, you know, all kinds of things that could bite you. And it was fun. It was challenging, you know, but the thing about life forms was, so let's go to paramites first. We were going, how do we make it feel like a life form? Like if you had to confront a life form. And so the way paramites worked was they would, uh, if they sensed you, they would follow you, but they didn't want to get too close as an individual unless you cornered them. So it was basically a rat. If you cornered the rat, it will attack you. And I don't know if you've ever been cornered a rat, but they will attack you. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> it's terrifying, man, it, because they, they just go, it's now or never. I got to survive, and they're coming at you. And uh, raccoons will do that. You know, there's lots, of, lots of different animal encounters. It really seems like the behavior of paramites in so in, in in every way, pretty much. And that's really how it translates into gameplay, that's which right. is something that I'm I'm enthusiastic about because it gave not only a variety of gameplay within the game, but it gave a variety of Abe's reflections on the world. It's almost like if paramites and scrabs were reflections of different parts of Abe in this world. Yeah, and one thing that I never wanted to do, but uh, never figured out a way around of, because it's a game. If it was a movie, it would have been easy. But because it was a game, it was like, how do we, how do we not kill them for the trial? You know, because I, I never liked that part. Uh, and so it was like the the way the paramites was like, if you had one, you only had a problem if it 
if you cornered it. If there was two, you had a real problem because now they were going to start to chase and attack you. So it was defensive play. That's something else I wanted to focus on was defensive play rather than offensive play. It's like, how fast can I run to escape something but lead it into a trap? And <laughs> that, that was full of its own challenges. But with the, that, if I could make it feel more alive... And that was the same thing with GameSpeak. Like if I could, if we could throw a word instead of a punch, if we could have a guy respond, you know, he'll, he'll fool me. Okay. You know, and then they do it. Right. Then you're like, oh, he's, oh, he's cute. He's helping you. You'd be like, oh, okay. But then if I get him killed, then why'd you get him killed? He was helping you. You know, so if, if you could create the little, uh, the relationship aspects that were very subtle, like don't get too close to those guys, man. Don't get them close to a wall because they'll attack your ass. You're not, it's like, you're not talking about a game character. You're talking about a life form, like this, like your kids in the woods, you know, trying to figure out how to get around this. And so that was uh, the idea there was if we can get some more realistic type of relationship balances, just like with what happens with you and a stray dog or a rat or a raccoon, then, um, that's a lot more interesting because it can feel a little more alive rather than just, Oh, there's an enemy. And if I don't cancel it, it's going to cancel me. Right. And, uh, but I was never happy with the killing them because it kind of went against the theme of why you were doing it, but it's a game. And that was the easiest solution. And <laughs> you can't work on it forever. You know, if it was a movie, I would have had other remedies. I would have had like, and when he gets them in this position, he needs to, to give them this toxin that will just leave them asleep for two hours, but he can leave with what he needed, you know, the trim of the hair on their tail, or, or maybe he pulls out one tooth or something to prove that he did, but I didn't want to kill them, but that's how, that's how it goes. You know, the compromises of gaming. This is really interesting. I got to tell you through the cinematics of Oddworld Soulstorm, I could tell that there is a film director within you that's screaming, that's waiting to be heard in so many ways. <laughs> and yeah, I remember true. seeing those, uh, animated scenes, those cinematics, seeing Abe and actually getting to cry with Abe because when that scene in Other Source and when he falls down and he's, he's on the ground and he starts crying, in that moment, in that moment, I could project intimacy and complexity on the character of Abe on all the previous games. Just mm. through that moment, the character of Abe embraced depth on all the different games and i said wow if this if this element if the cinematic element was to be utilized completely to tell the story i wonder where oddworld would actually go and so why do you choose and how come do you still choose games instead of movies given the complexity of your world well we really get into uh first thank you and um i completely agree and this is where games are it's kind of games are painful to make because you you compromise your vision tremendously and um I'm not, I'm not saying you know everybody but i feel that way and i should probably try and design simpler games you know but for some reason i've gotten into designing complex games but um the 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 thing about like when abe gets that dose of information. What he's getting is the download of the true history of the world. And and I say this because what is, I'm going to veer a, a couple of directions. We'll come back to Abe and passing out. And I won't forget. Okay. Um, the, here's what we know about history. Empire conquers and burns libraries. 
Then what it does is build museums in remembrance of the lie that they need to sustain. That's pretty much everywhere. And people go, oh, that's ridiculous. The Smithsonian would never do it. It's like, shut the fuck up. You have no idea what you're talking about. You know, like people are really, that's one of our willful ignorances that we're taught that somehow museums hold integrity of truth. But they're really built by the empire that just burned down the library that they didn't want you to know. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting it into kind of black and white terms, but, you know, for the sake of discussion. And so what would the idea of the true history of the world look like? And who might have this? And this is something that's interesting about indigenous cultures because they had oral histories. And I watched the uh, documentary one time. It was called um, the, the, why, the Elder's Warning. The Elder. The, yeah, the, the older brothers, the elder brothers warning. And it was uh, just to veer off for a second, I think it's relevant, but the, it was they found a tribe in, uh, I think it was in Brazil, but it was South America. They found a tribe that they thought had been uh, genocided by the Spaniards 500 years ago. It was still surviving in the Andes, in the high Andes. And this tribe was probably as shamanic in indigenous culture as you could get in terms of they walked with the spiral of life as they saw it as spiritual creatures. And I was listening to the shaman. And what happened was this tribe noticed, this is how it got discovered, is they taught one of their own were sent them out to learn Spanish because they were still speaking an indigenous dialect. And they sent him to find the BBC and uh, tell the world their warning. Their warning was just, just out of interest was that there was no longer the same snow caps building up on the mountaintops and they were up high in the Andes, but they could still see, and no one knew when they were there and they could still see these cities of like 20 million people below. And there's a number of cities in South America that a lot of people have never heard of, but they have 20 million inhabitants, right? So they, they were like, you do realize you're not going to have water. And so they, they taught one of their own to learn Spanish and then go into the real, you know, the industrialized world and find someone that could report this warning that they have for the rest of us. And they called themselves the elder brothers because they felt like we were the younger brothers, the young naive. The rest of the world had not retained their wisdoms. But this was a, now this is the, the real clincher was, this was a oral tradition. They didn't have writing. And I, I was watching this this guy who was their present you know, top shaman, and he was telling the story of how the Spaniards murdered them. But this was 500 years earlier. But he had heard it from voices of people that heard it from voices. And so I don't think he ever heard the story where it wasn't told to him in authentic tears. Because as he told the story again, he starts crying. He goes, how could they? How could they? And, he, and he's crying. To something that happened 500 years ago. And I was like, if you read the book, you probably wouldn't feel the way he internalized it. But through oral tradition, more than just information is conveyed, like the emotional energy is conveyed. And, you're, and, and, you, and you look, you, when you watch this man talking about what happened and, and, and watching how, how it affected him, he looked like an actual witness to the events. And that triggered my idea. I was like, what if we could see 
the real history of the world through the minds of those who experienced it, through their memories. And that led me on another uh, discovery where I found that there was a lot of Tibetan monks that had died they they did this on purpose, right? They basically felt like they reached the end of their time, and now they died in a meditative position. And they remain that way, and they become mummified that way. And it, it's a weird thing, because normally they shouldn't just mummify. You know, you should decay, but they didn't. And some of them would later, like, you thought you were buying a... a, a uh, they thought they had found like porcelain sculptures of Buddhas in a monkey me meditation of porcelain. And then they x-ray them and there's a person inside that the, that the porcelain was built around. And this was the, and, and when you find these bodies in this meditative state, the Tibetans would be like, don't, don't take them away and don't cut them up because they're still connected. Their their mind, their soul is still out there and they have transcended, but they're still connected to this body. So don't destroy the body. And I was like, wow, if that if we if we extrapolated on that and said, well what if throughout history there was a group that was retaining these sort of monk-like memories and they were doing it in another environment that I think the the area where you saw the Abe, that's the catacombs. And it's the most secret place in the world, on the odd world. And what Abe is getting is the download of the memories from these thousands of monks that have died and retained their memories in this hive of knowledge. And And you have to be qualified. You have to have the key to get the download. And Abe almost has the key because he has the scars of the two previous trials but the next trial is with these these sleeches in this game right so in in abe's, uh, in abe's exodus they were the fleeches because this is like the larvae state and that was like after they were grown states so that's how it justified it but the idea being that if you could see the actual history your mind would be completely blown because it's not what we've been taught, right? So what I wanted to do was two things. I wanted to show the impact of that possibility and set up the stage of the condition of the environment where this might happen as a download. Like if you could download the truth of the history of the world as seen by a lot of the witnesses and the victims rather than as told by the museums that retained the authority's message, then uh, how how impactful would that be? And what did he learn? You know, and, and so for this game, I was like, he's going to get that download and it's going to absolutely shatter him. And it's going to shatter a lot of his innocence, even though he's been through hard things and he's killed, and, you know, you know, he's, he's you know, the, the, the beginnings of, of the leader of a revolution. What, what would it, what would it impact him and what would we think happened? And that's where I came away with, I think I want to leave it a complete mystery what he learned, but it's so devastating. It just shatters him. And all he really does is he picks out a few crown jewels that he's willing to communicate. Like I know where our mother is, but I don't know why she left us there. And by the way, she's all of our mothers. You know, I just wanted to plant this, these big idea seeds and hopefully, you know, we get to keep on telling the story, but in soul storm, it was that chance to sort of get more into the, uh, into the uh, that epiphany, that uh, that zone of existential, like where it's so overwhelming. What do we do now? 
you know, like, like if we're really up against this, it's kind of like what I've heard a lot of game founders, you know, game company founders say, which is if I had any idea how hard it was, I never would have did it. <laughs> and, and I'm in that camp too. Like it's, it's, and, and not just to be whiny, but it's kind of a warning to people like this is really hard stuff. And, uh, you know, it can, it can dominate your life. Like, we, you know, we've been involved with filmmaking. Filmmaking is a lot easier than products that people play, but are trying to push the latest in computer chip technology. It's a good way to summarize it. And so anyway, that was the setting of the catacombs. And the idea was, was that Abe gets to see the truth of the history. And all we get to know is that it's so horrible and terrible. And so I didn't want to focus on that. I just wanted to show the impact on Abe and have it be sort of like, okay, he just grew up a little more. Now, how is it going to affect him going forward? You know, and and why was it only him that could have done it? And it wasn't that it was and, and why. And he was foretold to have done it. And this is things I find really interesting, too. Like just yesterday, I was listening to Aboriginal uh, prophecies of this time. And it's really interesting because I had looked at Mayan prophecies this time and Hopi prophecies of this time all around the second millennia. And biblical, you know, New Testament prophecies, Revelations prophecies this time, all, all this kind of stuff. And, um, and I find that really interesting because it sets out sort of goals to decrypt, you know, whether or not they're valid, they're interesting. And so for, for Abe, I wanted it to be that he's fulfilling a prophecy that he doesn't know he's a part of yet. And somehow they knew he was coming, but it would be like, the Indians had prophecies. They said when the white buffalo returns, you know, and then like I think 20 years ago, a white buffalo was born on one of the reservations here in the United States. And all of a sudden that was like a big thing because it was like, whoa, white buffaloes aren't normally born, you know, and they prophesize one's going to come. And when that one shows up, these other things are going to happen. And so I, I'm, I'm just kind of eternally fascinated by those things. And also on divination, you know, like how many people did know something was coming. How did Nostradamus do what he did? You know, how much was N Newton not only interested in physics, but uh, and not only interested in astronomy, but astrology, right? Like some of the brilliant, or, or Dr. D's with the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, I don't know if, if you know who I'm talking about, but basically the creator of MI5. And, uh, the, the man that almost all, almost all, uh, I gotta tap my dog. Uh, almost all wizards are modeled after with the long beards, Dr. D's. He was possibly one of the smartest people in the world in, in England in the Middle Ages. But these people were mystics as well as scientists. So only as we entered into the last couple of centuries did we start separating the two. But almost all astrophysicists today become mystics. Like, this is an interesting thing. Einstein, David Braun, you know, you, you have these, uh, they reach a point where they go, I thought I knew everything, and we really don't know shit. And that's when I find someone gets really interesting. The guy who knows everything, he's, he's you know, he's got an interesting point of view, but we, I feel like we're puppies in the universe. You know, I don't know if you've ever done DMT or ayahuasca, but that really sort of shows you how, what little puppies we are in the universe. You know, you just come out feeling dumb, like, wow, we don't know shit. But, uh, 
which, you know, microdosing and stuff like that is becoming more like DMT is becoming a thing now. You know, 20 years ago, no one knew what the hell you were talking about, diomethyltryptamine um, and what it does. So I'm really curious about these things that expand our consciousness and give us that moment of like growing up. And then what do you do with it? You know, you just don't become a murderous revolutionary. Like, I mean, hopefully not. But what do you do with it? And so in this game of Soulstorm, because of the added resolution of, uh, you know, the system's power, the uh, computer graphics resolution, and we could do it at cheaper prices today, uh, we were able to sort of res up the world and its look. But I wanted to res up the idea and the thinking as well. And I was like, well, let's just take a chance with this. So let's just let's just take it into some territories where we're going to open more questions than we answer, have Abe get closer to his sort of Aboriginal roots and this and find the jackpot of knowledge that shows him what happened in the world. And now he knows something that we don't. And now our curiosity is how is he going to unfold our understanding of that? You know, hopefully. And touching on that, Oddworld seems like a world where there are clearly good people and there are clearly bad people that take advantage of good people. And the glucons taking advantage of the mudocons and the slicks being servants to the glucons in this in this malevolent cause. While in the world, it's really hard to define who is good or bad given the complexities of society. That's right. I want to ask you, what made you choose a clear ethical difference in the universe of our world? The, I, I, would, I would say it this way, is what made the storytelling begin with the appearance of a clear difference. And then I hope, I so hope to be able to continue uh, unfolding the story. And maybe it happens as graphic novels before it takes, you know, three years a game or something like that. Like maybe I can do the whole series as graphic novel. We're talking about that um, because I really want to tell the story and I don't want to be governed by the slowness of game production to tell the story. Uh, so to that, I, set, I wanted to set up that the appearance seems very clear. And so when we have an oppressed people, it's very clear that they're all oppressed, right? Like when we see a prisoner camp uh, and we see people starving, we have empathy for all of them. And they all seem like good guys that need to be rescued, right? But is that really what happens when we rescue them all? Or is there some bad guys in there too? That just, you know what I mean? Like life is always more complex. And, and so what I wanted to do is set up very clear sort of boundaries of who is good and who is bad in our perception at this time. But what I wanted to do was get deeper into that. And we did a little bit with the Gluckens this time where you find out, you think this guy was, you know, Darth Vader or Kingpin, but you really find out he's just a pawn in the game and he's can possibly be the next product too, right? Like it's a ruthless system. And so in Stranger, I don't know if you played Stranger, but in Stranger's Wrath, there was another evil entity and it was the, the uh, head of... Sorry. Uh, just got a call. I got to tell him. <laughs> producer partner. Okay. Um, I wanted to start showing that they were victims too. They just happened to be on the right side of the, of the money game so to speak, you know, and so we wanted to show that they will eat their own and they're really low. And in, in, in stranger, the bad guy was a Glock, the guy, which is a higher status than a Glucken. 
and they're a parasite where they go over the, the heads of whoever they take over and then they'll start impersonating and you don't realize it's a head on top of a head like like a parasite that shrunk its way on but they're in a higher status than the gluckens are but they're related you know because they're all sort of in the realm of the octagai and uh, the lineages of octagai and so one of the, the gluckens are actually pretty low on the on the uh on the power structure and they're what I would call the C class. And by the C class, I mean like the CEO class, the CFO class, you know, we call it the, the chief executive class of business today. Now people think those are the big leaders. And at times you'll get your Elon Musk's and your, you know, uh, Steve Jobs and, you know, the, where the central pillar and personality who created the idea is still running a corporation. But for a large degree, once things become big corporations, this is kind of a class of people that are bred to run them. And and that's, you know, and then we get into all different things. You know, when I first saw the first uh, premier party, I think they called it a coming out party. I'm not sure. It was in New York. And I heard about this because I was starting to get around wealthy kids that were really wealthy. And they were like, oh, well, this is when the girls are presented to society at the, at, you know, it's at Madison Square Garden, right? <laughs> You'll never get a ticket. But this is saying like, this is our, our, our daughter. She's built, she will be available for marriage. And, and she can help a company, you know, we can, we can form relationships within these big families and we can keep the industries to ourselves, right? This is really what's going on at that level. And I'm over, oversimplifying everything, but you know, we need a takeoff point to discuss them. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. So they're kind of breeding. And if you talk to people, I mean, there's, there's people uh, that have, uh, uh, done exposés on their lives and they're like look i was being set up to run a corporation ever since i was a kid the family business is this this these are the interconnected relationships of the families and this is what we this is why we go to these schools this is why we're in these sites this is why the women are presented when they're available this is why these things happen and it's just not like hey it goes to the best player you know it's like maybe you can work your way in from the outside and become successful in that world and i think technology has allowed more people to do that from the robber baron age you know it's like you really do need brilliant minds you can't just have the flunky kid in the family running a big corporation you know because <laughs> it's a lot more sophisticated these days and it has to be a lot smarter but the idea was that the c level is still kind of a different type of worker and the real power is hidden and this is really interesting like if you go back in world history there's the hittites which uh they they thought was was maybe not even a real people like maybe it was mythological people right the hittites and it had largely been erased out of history and then you find out no what they did was they figured out thousands of years ago and the question is how much are they still here today but thousands of years ago they figured out to rule kings royal families kings and queens royalty eventually it'll always fail eventually it will always fail because somehow it'll need to be overthrown and so how do we not be the kings and queens but how do we place the kings and queens and an art will remain secret in power and when we need to throw a king and queen and a royal family under the bus that's what we'll do and then we'll say it's a new beginning and people won't even know we're controlling the strings but we'll say a revolution occurred and we toppled that evil king and now there's a new good king right and they're like you keep believing that because we're hidden. And if we're hidden, we have the ability to really pr 
prolong the test of time. But if we're visible, it's only a question before it's either in our lineage, in our era, or it'll be our grandchildren's era, but we'll be overthrown. And there seems look, to be something yeah. hidden in Oddworld also behind all of these glucons and, and everything that has to do with that class of characters, almost that species, right? Because every yes. line of character is defined as a species That's in right. this world. That's right. And uh, it's a very clear way to communicate that kind of structure and the different characters that those species have in relationship to one another. And yeah, so what I just want to say real quick, just to wrap that up, is, is that so... If, if, if we can continue the story, which I really hope to do, because I feel like we've just broken the, the surface of it, you know, is then we can get into how you realize who you thought was king is just a pawn in the game. And then that keeps on going up. The X-Files did that great, right? You thought the cigarette smoking man was the real power player. And then you realize, no, he's just someone else's bitch. And uh, it's just a whole different level of invisible power that normal people don't even know about. But sorry, I just wanted to add that. So back sure. To and, and thank you for doing that, because Oddworld is in many ways a reflection of the Earth's dilemmas. Mm. How can storytellers curate that reflection responsibly? That, I think, is, is one of the integral questions of our day and one of the necessary ones, quite frankly, is I heard Joseph Campbell at the end of his life giving some talks. You can probably find them on YouTube at uh, where he taught, which was uh, Santa Barbara University. And as he got older, he got more brutal in what he was saying. And what he was saying was he, I watched him go on these rants. He was like, how crazy that a religion could outlaw nature. You know, and, and, and look at the problems that we have in the world today. And what he was saying was basically the politicians have failed us, the business leaders have failed us, the industries have failed us. But the art is our last hope because it's the only thing that's going to cut through this sort of spell of hypnosis that the modern world puts us under with, you know, consumerism and and political jockeying, using the public mind to get votes, you know, whatever, whatever game is afoot. What he was saying was the artist is who our hope relies on. And when you think about that, you're like, how many songs have saved people's lives? You know, like, like what happens? How many people have been really depressed and where do they go? I remember as a kid, sometimes I get really depressed and then I would just escape into this yes album. You know, it was uh, called Fragile. And then one day, you know, later in life, I got to meet uh, John Anderson. And I was like, when I was so depressed as a kid, I just used to go take a bath in the house because it was the only place I could close the door and not hear shit or not get shit. And I just used to listen to your album and it would take me to these fantasy worlds. And it was just so inspiring, you know. And you think about that and you go, how many, how many, how much music has changed the world over time? You know, that's an obvious one. How many Books have changed people. Movies have changed people. Shows have the capability, the power of media, right? So at one time we were putting it on a cave wall because that's all we had. We took the charcoal. We, we, we mapped out what we needed to survive. We need to hunt these creatures if we're going make it, to make it to next year. So we visualized what we needed for a future. And now we visualize what we need to sell product, whether it's uh, – a, a you know a shrink wrap politician, or whether it's a piece of junk food that's someone's revenue stream, or a piece of plastic, or you know some some kind of built-in obsolescence. That's kind of where our new uh, value system is, right? But where is that one that says this gives people really what they need to survive in this modern world and make it better? And I think I, I came to a zone where I went, this 
it's so easily corrupted today. And corruption is the big thing. I don't think people understand at all, really. Like when you really understand the art of corruption that's been going on for potentially thousands of years, it's so much more sophisticated than the news would ever report, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and what's going on there, really. You know, like it's not even scratched what was really going on there, in my opinion. But um, not to go down those rabbit holes, but you go, how do we get out of it when everything's basically, everything that has airtime is basically there to sell us something, you know? Like the only reason TV exists is because of commercials. That's it, right? Now, movies get approved by the toy company, right? <laughs> I mean, literally, like like the, the licensing companies, the product placement companies have final, final pro- decisions on the scripts now in Hollywood because they're um, contributing that much to the budget or the marketing of a film, right? So what is the artist's role? You know, when we say in the music, you go, well, um, you know, you can make songs that make people happy, and that's great, right? It, and, then, and then you got, that's Elvis, and then you got Bob Dylan, who came later, right? It's the Beatles in the beginning, and then John Lennon later. It was like all of a sudden, the 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 role can become more important and have bigger influences and and help show us a way. And so I felt like with video games, what do what are we dealing with? We're dealing with something that is in a world of. You know, if you studied advertising like I did, then you studied marketing and and had an idea of how things, you know, how hard it is to penetrate visibility for anything you build into a mass market. You realize, you know, these are very real challenges that carry very high price tags or extreme ingenuity, you know, to figure out, oh, we marketed this way, guerrilla marketing style. You know, and you're like, wow, that's brilliant. But um, when you when you look at this, you go, What's what's the ability to get the messages that we really need? And how in a world where we're now bombarded with distraction are people engaging with video games for more stay of duration for longer hours than ever? So you go in a world full of distraction, kids in China and Korea have died from exhaustion between a, you know, uh, Internet cafe where they just couldn't stop playing the game around the clock in a world full of billions and trillions of options that one product can hold them that strong. And I was really fascinated by that sort of concept. So as we looked at uh, what is the game medium and what can we do with it? Like you were saying, you know, film, why wasn't it a film first? Well, as a film, I, th- I realized uh, if we wanted to tell Odd World as a movie, we were probably looking at $100 million in 1994, maybe maybe $60 million. And I was like, but I think we can build the game and birth the IP for like $3.5 million. So it wasn't even a viable film option. And there was no, no market for short films. Uh, there's still, maybe there's beginning to to be, you know, because of the internet and, and ad, ad views, you know, paid, paid views for advertising, but uh, that didn't exist. You know, uh, Pixar was the first one to start convincing theaters to start playing their shorts before the movies in the place of commercials. You know, no one was doing that before then. There was no market for shorts. My point is, is that 
movies relied on box office. Box office was a certain number of theaters across the world. If you didn't have the skids greased to get into that distribution channel for movies, then you were dead. And it didn't matter how good your movie was because it would never be seen by anyone. And there's a lot of great material lying on the cutting room floor, whether it's in recording studios or, you know, editing bays or, or uh, you know, game developments that never saw the light of day, but they were really great. There's really great writers that you never heard of. There's awesome directors that never got the opportunity. And so I felt like the film was a much more higher risk way to enter IP creation. But a, but I wish we could engage it because you can tell a more narrative, deep, detailed story. But what really is exciting is more of streaming because then you can have a series. And so if you think of a film, you're like, I have to tell the world in basically 90 to 100 minutes. and then it has to go through a complete arc, you know, have a, a great, you know, hopefully at minimal, a great three-act structure that leave, leaves us feeling satisfied. But that's only two hours to explore a world. Well, what did Game of Thrones do? What did Sopranos do, right? It wasn't just one movie of Casino. It was a season where you really, you know, Breaking Bad, you really get to know these characters and you really get to spend time in the world. And then as you look at the seasons, you're like, this is a 200-hour movie. That's a lot more interesting because you can get so much more into the content of the world. Sounds like the next step for Oddworld would potentially be a series to be able to create this world and 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 get those characters out there. Also, probably to a wider audience because we know that the gaming community is a huge community, but at the same time, it's a community that has a lot of expectations. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, how do you navigate this the space between what the audience expects and what you want as an artist? That's a great question. You know, I think uh, you have to you have to consider the audience. If, I think one thing that helps me is fishing was my first love. Not catching fish and killing them, but the sport of fishing. And fly fishing really became something that I got really close to. And the thing that I love about it is you have to understand the species. You have to understand what they're eating. And you have to understand how to present it at the right time. And if you don't, you're not going to catch shit. So and that's, that's, that's commercial marketing, right? The, we have an audience. You have to give them what they are looking for, but you're going to try and provide them something with more nutrition, even if that's not what they care about. So I was calling Oddworld sort of uh, in the beginning. I was saying, look, it's the carob colored granola bar in a Snickers wrapper. Right? It's like it looks like the junk food you want to eat, but maybe it has something of more value that you weren't expecting. And that's the kind of content I was interested in creating because I do believe in that role of the artist and storyteller and the value to civilization. It doesn't mean I'm that important. It just means that that's what I believe, you know. And if I'm going to make work, I hope to make work that can make a difference and not just a difference to a bank account, but a difference in people's lives that's more positive to help us make a better world. And, so once yeah. you once you created a world that people know and love and that people associate you with, how do you evolve as an artist within that world? Uh, well, it's a tricky one because the world has expectations that if you break too far from it, you shoot the whole IP in the foot. And so you got to be careful there. So I do feel like I want to spread my wings a lot beyond Oddworld. I've got other IPs that I've created on paper that have been greenlit at different times and we pulled out of um, that would deal with more contemporary content, more of uh, a landscape of, let's say, 
uh, nanotechnology and privacy and fake terrorism threats, you know, like, like real Orwellian control system, but with modern technology. Like if you think back to, to 1984, right? That was the computer hadn't even really, I mean, IBM was tracking numbers on forearms, right? For Germans. But beyond that, people didn't even understand computer tech yet. You know, we, it was what sent the, the Apollo missions to the moon were still less powerful than your than the iPhone in your pocket today, right? Like we're in a whole different landscape. So Oddworld's landscape, uh, I want to get closer to the cities because that's like, so far we've been out in the third world. I want to have it end up in the first world. And so then it gets more modern and it's different, but it's still not one that would become nanotech and, and internet and like that because it's just not the appropriate place for it. So there's a lot of things happening today that are very relevant that I don't feel like I can weave into Oddworld. Uh, and there's a lot of things at Oddworld that I'd like to tell that are still relevant that don't have to go in that direction. But I think you have to balance the uh, fan expectation and try to push in a way that you think is going to get them excited and uh, expand on a universe that they they got familiar with and stay excited with it versus breaking that. And I'd say breaking that, a good example would be like, uh, you know, w w when you saw the first Matrix, wow, right? Like the first act of the first Matrix is like we watch it, we're still blown away. And then you get into the second and third one, right? And it progressively went downhill. But the reason we went downhill is the first one, they had freedom. And the second one, they got enormous budgets and short deadlines. So it's more like, get us that product in this amount of time. We'll pay whatever. And we'll give you more studio notes too, you know? So it's not the same. Uh, it didn't have the same sort of almost like film school mentality about we're just going to build this, you know? And that was the first, <laughs> the first matrix, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll sleep on the streets, whatever we need to do. Throughout your career making Oddworld, did you feel more free or less free as you made games through time? Well, the, the games and the technology open up some more freedom, but with that comes more expense in R&D challenge. And uh, uh, with that comes higher risk in different terms. Um, you know, no matter what, they've only gotten more expensive to make. Now, it's very simple. If you were making Mario from today, then the cost of making it back then, uh, you know, aside from inflation, right, it's, it's probably a lot easier because a lot more tools exist. But the bar has gotten a lot higher. So you need to evolve your IP with the audience expectations, but you still need to surprise them. And that's what I think. In some ways, I think that's a handicap for Oddworld is that um, perceived as, as kind of the, the creator force for it, uh, as opposed to, you know, a property like uh you know, GTA or something like that, right? Where you, you, you know, it had creators, but it was very, it was, it was easier rolled into continuous creation because you had a real world model to focus on. We, we, we're hijacking cars and we're dealing with drug dealers and gangsters and shit, you know, lots of material there. But when you have a unique universe, um, you put the clamp on that a little bit and it's harder for other creators to come on and stay true to, you know, what they thought was going on. I felt like with, with Soulstorm, we took a chance and I wanted to kind of turn up the intensity dial a bit and and sort of leave you with more questions than you had, but you'd be really hopefully engaged with those questions uh, and also serve a couple of different 
purposes and goals. One was if we res up the characters, I feel like we invested a little over invested intentionally on the resolution of the characters, the way that they animate. Uh, I wanted to have all kinds of different voices and COVID kind of killed that on me. So I wound up doing almost all of them. Uh, and which is not because not, not I wanted to, you know, it's the only way we control it with the way things change over time. And it just gets complicated. Which is impressive, by the way, having you listen, create those voices. And I wonder, did you do the Glockens and the Slicks and all of that as well? Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Right That's here. That's incredible. Right here at this desk. And this rolls over. And this is my mic. Wow. I'm going to have to ask you for an outro with your voice right, right. there. Huh? So get ready for that. <laughs> before is, before yeah. getting there, um, though, I have a confession to make because... Yeah. There has been a, a conversation going on on the internet about the Quintology and the games that you've been making. And I have to tell you that in spite of the progressing technology, my favorite games, like many people out there, are actually the first two games, which yeah, I keep playing I over and over again. <laughs> I and I, I wonder, what would you tell to people like me that are still, that are still so deeply in love with those first two games? In, in comparison to the more modern ones, you know, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Like if you know, if people are loving anything that we created, I can't, I can't have a bad note on that, right? Um, and I, I know why people feel that way. Uh, you know, to some regards, and uh, and then I think there's, you know, there it's. So I've gotten a lot of feedback. I mean, we we had our problems rolling out of the gate because we weren't able to close all the bugs and we didn't know everything was what was broken so you know we took some setbacks for that but um we've corrected that you know but some people never had those problems and a lot of those people were i get a lot of stuff that's like this is where i wanted Oddworld to go you know this is where i wanted it to be and then a lot of other people are like i still liked exodus more and i'm like well i'm not going to argue with that you know but those games were really designed to a limitation in technology and limitation to capabilities that we had. And one of the things we, we suffered on those first two games, they were notoriously hard and we had to make a choice. They were either going to be notoriously hard or too easy. And the reason for that was technical. It wasn't out of desire. So what we were doing is we were playing back sprites for so you're playing back an image like Flipbook, right? And that's how the, those old games worked. Well, that meant that they were solid state, meaning if a frame, if a walk cycle was 17 frames, it was 17 frames. And if you made it 16 frames, no matter what, the TV's playing back at 30 frames per second. So if you made it at 16 frames, it was that much faster. If you made it at 18 frames, it was too slow. So it's like, shit, everything on timing was not analog and dynamic. It was very digital and fixed. And so when it came to difficulty, it was little decisions that would have huge weight, but like the speed of a paramite and how fast the screen would wipe. And if it was too fast, which meant it played a little bit on, better on the same screen, but it would kill you too soon on the second screen. You know, there was all these gives and takes. And so they were just really hard to balance. And I wouldn't say we balanced them that well, uh, because they were, in my opinion, they were too hard. When I go back and I watch people play those games and, and I watch new people play those games, I'm just like, oh, God, this is terrible. Because they just, I don't know why they haven't thrown down the controller already, you know. But uh, so 
it's not the game you wanted to ship. It's the game you could ship. And what I always wanted to do was get more epic. And I mean that in, a, in like a film sense of epic. You know, I wanted more distant shots and wanted more camera roving to really set things up. And the truth is, <clears throat> I wanted to do that with Stranger. I uh, wanted to do that with Munch. And they, you know, they had uh, as, project, as projects, they had their own challenges and they, th those camera abilities didn't get there. But in Soulstorm, they got a lot closer to there. So some things, you know, people liked or didn't like. But one of the things that some people really notice is they're like, the sense of scale, man, it's, it's in the gameplay now. It's not just the movie or it's not just the background. And we had to develop, and it, it was uh, quite a bit of effort. It was develop a camera editing system that allowed us to be like, okay, he's going to climb the ladder now, but we want to stay low and we want to zoom out a little. And we just want to see him get smaller and smaller and smaller. But once he reaches up there, boom, we want to go to it real clean. And then we want the composition. We want to control the composition entirely throughout the gameplay. And that's something like most games, what happens is you have an over the shoulder camera or you have POV camera, or you have, you know, a top down, uh, uh, orthographic sort of view of the world you know like uh league of legends or something and but i felt like i really wanted more of the camera experience to be more filmic and it, it it it's it's a rather complex system to do that especially one where then you can have the tools so let me say this in the past when we did some of those systems if someone was really had a good sensibility for cinematography and was highly technical on the tools, they could get it to work. But the average designer couldn't. And and I'm not saying that as a detriment to their skills. I'm just saying this was the case. If the tools get harder, fewer people can make good things out of them. And so we were in conditions where it's like, it's kind of capable, but the amount of effort it's going to take and the few people that can actually make that happen, it's too many problems to try and solve on a project. So we kept on it was always an ambition of mine, but we kept on glossing over it uh, out of necessity. And on Soulstorm, I was like, no, we're going to stick to it this time. And we realized something early, which was we need to push the three-dimensional trek into the world, but retain this thing that people love, which is about this sort of the action of the side scroller and the way it aligns to the screen and the way you can see what's happening around the character, not just what's in front of the character, which is what comes with a over-the-shoulder camera or a POV camera. And so all these things were deep consideration. So if you looked at the flow between the movies and the game in this, and we had a lot of, a lot of challenges with audio uh, that I, th I think we've you know, finally gotten better after release, but I, I didn't realize uh, how imbalanced it was at times. And these are all like highly technical, deep problems. But usually you have to get the whole game all running before you can really nail down these <laughs> problems, you know? And... Um, so that, that gets back to the game you ship versus the game you wanted to make. And then you weren't planning on COVID where no one could be together, which is like you, you would never sign up for that because how do you get it done? So it's just an impossible level. But what I wanted to do was have the – I wanted a lot more of the story in the game. But because a lot of our mechanics and game engine was taking too long to get, I had to back them into the movies. And what that meant was we had an original movie budget of about 18 minutes. But as basically years are going by and we're still having some challenges at the core engine level of getting the scale of world that we want, getting the memory management to be what we want, like things you don't have to deal with in a movie, you know, mm -hmm. and it all has to run in real time. So this was like, 
you know, not to be underestimated challenges. And, uh, and, so, and so I was thinking, I wanted so much more of the story in the gameplay. You know, you go up, you talk to this guy, he gives you this information, you do these other things that, that would be very engaging. Those systems didn't uh, develop that much more sophisticated than they had been in the past. But the systems that did was like the camera system. So what I did was I had to say, well, more of the story is going to have to be told in the movie because I, I can't tell where in the game I'll actually be able to tell it. And this was because that depends on features and that depends on technology and tools. And, um, you know, with the various challenges, those were unknown. So it went, shit, I just got to back in. And I remember telling Sherry, it was like, Sherry, you love the stories that we tell, um, but the, you know, we're having a lot of challenges with the game technology. And I, I think the smartest thing for us to do is just increase the movie budget quite a bit and just, you know, just not try to get that into the game, just have the game be good game. And, and so with the camera system, I was, I was trying to get that sense of the game would feel more like movies at times, even though it was more action gameplay telling the story within there. And then you take your, you know, your sort of classic cinematic moment and not knowing where that would be laid out meant that we added up to, I think ultimately we delivered 52 minutes of, uh, of animated, you know, computer graphics of, of high resolution, you know, 8K textures on the characters, the Gluckins. And in that, just real quick, I wanted to get that hyper expression where the rigging was different than normal. Like normally you just have the eyes. And I was like, no, the eyeball needs to get bigger. And then the eye socket needs to. And so with the rigging, they were like, what? And we went through some challenges there. But I really wanted that feeling where when you looked at a still frame, I wanted this in the game. But that wasn't reasonable. So in the cinematics, it was there where it was like, anytime you see a still frame of the characters, I was like, their expressions should be so, so identifiable that we have a good idea what they're thinking. So if we just took a still shot of a, in, of a movie sequence where we see a number of characters talking, we should see like from their expressions, we should have a good idea what's going on. So we went for what I would call hyper expressive, which often in animation, you're trying to squash and stretch, you know, bodies and things like that. But I wanted that happening in the face in a more kind of realistic way so that the characters would be more engaging and hopefully more funny, even though they were evil. <laughs> I really appreciate that attention to that detail and how that also tries to really push the boundaries of gaming in many ways and the experience of playing games because the focus has always been on so many different parts of the storytelling experience through games. Mm -hmm. But going to that detail, to the hyper expression is something that I think people have appreciated a lot as I did in seeing Abe in those conditions mm -hmm. and how that has impacted my, my perspective on all the previous games. But, but you still like Odyssey and Exodus better. <laughs> I think that 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 that's something that's really interesting to explore, at least conceptually, because mm -hmm. the games they delivered a world, even through the backgrounds, right? Where mm -hmm. I could dream of that, and the idea that those worlds were engaging me in such a way that I had to think in those ways and really think about a stealthy approach rather than maybe a more active approach. That had more of an, an appeal to me, of course. This is on a personal mm -hmm. level. But before wrapping up this conversation, I want to really highlight how Oddworld is an IP, is a universe that points the finger to the number one crisis of them all in our world. And then number one crisis is the, a crisis of truth, where there is a lack of that 
truth that's being conveyed and, and Oddworld does such a great work uh, pointing the finger at that. And I want to thank you for doing that because it, it really occupies its own unique space in, in the creative space for artists. So I really oh, respect you. I really respect the work that you've put in, all of your team, uh, all of the years you've put into creating this world and allowing us to dream in that world as well. And so I want to ask you if the Oddworld universe could speak his message to the audience out there, what would that message be? Is, and this is something I believe, we are far more magnificent creatures than we've been allowed to believe. And if we embrace that, like if we really embrace that, we're going to find out we're, I, I just believe we're so much more special than we've been led to believe. And I, and I think history is full of the stunting of that information. So if there's a single message, it's like, don't ever let anyone convince you that you're not capable. You know, this is one of the tragedies that I, that I, that I, I see today is a lot of young people are being told, being told you'll never have a chance. And it's those people's fault. It's like, that is exactly the wrong message people need to obtain their dreams. And I think when I see, the, the world of people, even though there's different races, I see souls. And not so much in a religious text, but let's take it more in a shamanic context. I see a world of souls that lives many lives and comes in to learn lessons along the way. So I think we're so much more than what we think we are. And we have so much to learn that the mysteries ahead of us are far greater than the ones that we've solved and put behind us in our, in our, our books of wisdom, you know, knowledge. And there's so much more than that. So what I believe is, and this is Abe's painful journey, is he never believed what he could become. And he was forced to take the reins to, to just do the right thing. And that took him to a place where he becomes a hero and a, a martyr and an enemy and a so-called terrorist. Like they'll call him everything in the book. But for us individually, that's what I think. I think we're amazing creatures. And, uh, I just, I just hope that more things come into the world that give us the ability to see that, to know that, and to not be tricked into thinking we're less. That's wonderful. Lauren, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I got to tell you, there are so many people out there that um, are also in the process of creating these worlds. And so yeah. to wrap this up, one quick, the number one piece of advice you have for storytellers creating their own worlds. That's a great question. Uh, be careful. <laughs> be, be careful. Like, I used to think that creativity was a great asset, but I think it's also a curse. And it's easy to have very creative ideas that never see the light of day. So I think you really have to look at the world, not just as much as you want to break it, and I want to break it, you know, in good ways, uh, but not just in ways you want to break it, but how you adapt to it. And so I think that the challenge and the challenge for me, and I did this intentionally, was how do I trick an industry into having more nutritious content, you know, that, that gives them something that they weren't necessarily expecting from games. And I think there's a big future there. And you start getting into digital medicine and, and the things that'll come, you know, there's a big future there. But in that ultimate sort of soundbite of a creative, it's like, be careful. And what I mean by that is understand the market you're going to go into that you're aiming at and don't 
Don't just go, my new creative thing is going to blow them away. Don't do that. What are they eating? What do they know? How do people get financed? What's the marketing requirements? Like these are disciplines that creative people, a lot of times we just don't want to know. But if you want to create your own universe and you want to bring that to the world to, to a degree where other people can see it, you're going to have to, to uh, learn these disciplines, you know, and, and really investigate and look and research things you don't think you should need to know, but you're going to need to know if you're going to succeed, unless you've aligned yourself with great people and you should be doing that as much as you can anyway. Fantastic, Lauren. Thank you so much. Why don't you give us a quick outro with an odd world voice? Okay. Well, <laughs> let me see. Okay, Ruggiero. This has been so good. I just really appreciate it. <laughs> That's awesome, Lauren. Thank you so much. Okay, what thank an absolute you. Pleasure. I extend a big hug to you and to all of you out there listening to this episode. This was the one and only, the creator and co-founder of the Odd World Universe, Lauren Lanning. And out there, be careful, stay grateful, stay inspired. And remember, we eat emotions, we drink energy, we breathe stories, movies move us. Catch you in the next one. <laughs>